tell you, it feels good. I'm a little sick, but it feels good to be back in the studio and back on a, you know, regular schedule. You can probably hear a little bit of the sickness in my voice. Um, don't know why I'm sick. You know, I have one weird theory, which is we were in LA right at the height of the fires. And we, we drove all around LA and honestly, we didn't see, we didn't see any fires uh, but the final day we were there, we could smell a charriness in the air. You could smell the, the smokiness in the air. You couldn't really see it. I mean, maybe there was like a slight mist, but, you know, it looks just like fog would look, for example. But, uh, yeah, you could definitely smell it. And I have a theory that I either have like a little bit of a cold from traveling and everything, or it, it actually is just the, the remnants of breathing in that, like, really terrible air for a while. We actually got, you know, a warning on our on our phones when we were in L.A. that said, like, um, air quality is hazardous for people with, you know, certain issues. Like, if you have asthma or if you have some other type of breathing issue, you know, it's recommended you don't go outside in that. So I'm thinking maybe it's that. Uh, it could just be a standard cold, but I'm thinking maybe it's, uh, it's you know, whatever, the, the impact of the terrible air quality. But anyway, so there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about today. Um, first, let's do a breakdown of what everything was like. So obviously, we were in Tennessee and Nashville for Politicon, and then uh, Corin and I went to L.A., and uh, we were on the Joe Rogan Experience. Um, so first, let's go to Politicon, and let's go through. I like how I have my picture of myself over my left shoulder. That, that is like I'm realizing now how incredibly narcissistic that looks, <laughs> but it's too late to change it, so it is what it is. It's me and me. 
Um, so first, Politicon. Uh, let's see if I can even remember all the panels that I was on. Uh, first, let's talk about Trump versus Bernie. I had so much fun doing it. Uh, the guys are awesome. And, you know, took pictures with them. And they had requested that I be their moderator. And uh, I gladly accepted. That was actually the thing that made me the most nervous all week was Trump versus Bernie. And the reason is, for that, I had to be on a script. Um, and I've never been on a script before. I'm not an actor. I'm not comfortable on a script. I don't like being on a script. Uh, and so I didn't know how to deal with it. And the area where I feel like I struggled in the Trump versus Bernie debate where I was moderating was my timing. Because they had told me beforehand, hey, man, don't hesitate to, like, get in between us and, and say, hey, guys, calm down if we're at each other's throats. And um, so I did not hesitate to interject. I did not hesitate to basically shout them down. Uh, but they also said, well, if we're in the middle of a bit, let us finish the bit. Here's the problem. They're so good at what they do, I didn't know what was a bit and what was them just shooting from the hip. Because they're so funny and... You know, they can ad-lib just as good as if they were doing a bit. So I was clueless as to when to interject, when to go to the next question. You know, we had a sheet that kind of walked us through, hey, here's what the first question is going to be, the second question, the third question, so on and so forth. And they said, hey, you might miss some. It's okay. At the end, just skip to the end. But, again, I didn't know how much time was necessary for each thing for them to answer. So it was a little bit scattershot, and I was a little bit of a mess. So I don't think I did a great job moderating the debate because my timing was off because, again, I couldn't tell the difference between a bit or them ad-libbing because they're really funny either way. But after the debate, they told me, no, nah, man, you did a fine job. You did a good job, and, and uh, it went really well. So I, I want to thank them for that. Again, I apologize if my timing was off because I felt like it was off because I didn't know. I've never done anything like that before. So hopefully I didn't interject too much and I didn't ruin that event too much. Um, now, the other panels, we had the one with Tommy Lauren, Tim Black, and Lauren Chen. Um, that was an awesome panel. Massive shout-out to Tim Black, who held down the left position with me. Um, Tim Black is awesome in that format, man. Tim Black is a, is a natural in front of a crowd. Uh, he knows how to deliver his lines. He knows where to put the inflection in his voice and, and things of that nature. So massive shout-out to Tim Black. Great job there, man. Um, and him and I wound up, without even trying, it just kind of happened, doing a number on Tommy Lauren. <laughs> I almost felt bad for her at a certain point, because he was he was knocking her over the head with the Colin Kaepernick stuff and police brutality, and then I came in and also landed a line on, hey, I agree with you on free speech, and that's exactly why I'm on Colin Kaepernick's side and why I think he should still be in the NFL. He's certainly good enough to still be in the NFL, and uh, he's being punished for his free speech, for his right to protest. So that uh, panel was really, really good. Um, now, the James Carville one, oh, my goodness. You know, talk to Corin After that panel, it's the What Now Democrats panel. And after that panel, you couldn't talk to me for two hours. You could ask Corin. I was furious. I was beyond furious. I was just, I was steaming mad. Um, because not only was it like five versus one, because the moderator was also against me, because I'm fine with that. You can have it five versus one. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But the thing that got me a little mad is it wasn't like I was given a chance to respond every time somebody said something against one of my points or against my philosophy. It was like you'd have them start to pile on my ideology, 
and the philosophy that I represent, and then it would just go to somebody else to do the exact same thing. And um, that got me upset. I was upset with that. And in the moment, I felt like I, I totally bombed the panel because I didn't get enough time to speak. I got like, you know, one-tenth the time I needed to adequately rebut all of the stuff they were saying. But then looking at the panel after the fact, because Corin was trying to reassure me, like, nah, man, it was, like, you did a better job than you think you did, and, um, like, everybody's going to be with you. And so then after the fact, watching it, I realized, you know, my original perception wasn't exactly correct, that, yes, I did as good as I possibly could jousting with five people who disagree with me when even the, the time limits were lopsided against me. So looking back on it, I'm not as upset as I was in the moment. In the moment, I was just like, don't talk, like nobody talked to me. I'm really pissed. This was super annoying. I was dogpiled, and I wasn't given an adequate chance to respond, and I think I did a bad job. No, I really didn't do a bad job. I actually, I actually did a pretty good job looking back on it, but it just felt like I didn't, particularly because my time was so constrained, so I didn't feel like I had enough time to adequately respond to everything. Um, now, I believe that that's all the panels, right? Did I go through all the panels with you guys? I think so. If I'm missing one, I apologize. I really did a lot of events um, at this thing. Then comes the debate, the Charlie Kirk debate. Now, I think I wrecked him. <laughs> I mean, I do. I think I absolutely wrecked him. What's fascinating is the response afterwards. There were plenty of people who said, oh, my God, you destroyed him. For example, I got a text from T.J. Kirk, the Amazing Atheist. I'm not sure if you want me to say that. I also got a text from my buddy who's relatively apolitical, who been, I've been friends with since before high school. And, uh, you know, he watched the debate. I didn't even tell him I was debating Charlie Kirk, so it's funny that he found it right away. I guess I told him I was going to Politicon. But he found it online, and when he texted me afterwards and gave me, like, a paragraph as to, you know, hey, man, you did really well, and here's what I liked about it. Um, I, I was kind of verified in my opinion that I did destroy him. But what's interesting is some of the response online was people were, even people who agree with me, were really concerned about the fact that he kept talking and he went on. I mean, if you really break it down in terms of how much time each of us got, I genuinely think Charlie Kirk got 65% of the time. Like he spoke for the overwhelming majority of the time. Now, here's the thing, guys. I know that. <laughs> when I was on stage, I, I, it was obvious that that's what was happening. And I was fine with it. I was fine with it. And the reason is, I felt like he was meandering. He was going all over the place. Um, his points were not coherent. He honestly sounded like a Republican talking points machine. There wasn't anything remotely interesting about what he was saying, because it was all stuff you could see on Fox News at any night uh, at 9 o'clock. You know, turn on Hannity and you'll get those same talking points. So, you know, watching that in real time, my natural reaction, because you have to be able to shift gears in a debate, easily. My natural reaction was like, oh, okay. So give him enough rope and he's going to hang himself. And that's what happened. He would just go on and on and on. And then every, there was one moment during the debate, the debate, and I swear to God, I didn't plan this, but he had been droning on and on. And I was like, oh, it was so boring. And what he was saying was so stale that I literally went like this and pretended to sleep. <laughs> and again, I wasn't, I wasn't planning on doing that. It just kind of happened. It just kind of came out because that was my genuine reaction in the moment. So as my, my buddy uh, texted me, my friend Brian, he was like, he was just doing his pre-planned speech and like kind of going through his checklist. And I was responding like a, a human being. And 
the moment that I really got him and got him good is when I was not hesitating to to say, like, yeah, man, you want to talk about problems with the Democrats and corruption with the Democrats and Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation and all that stuff? Totally agree. Joe Biden? Totally agree. Corrupt as can be. But it's weird. I'm willing to admit that, and you're unwilling to admit Trump has done anything wrong. You're unwilling to admit that, you know, the Ukraine phone call was to get dirt on Joe Biden. You're unwilling to admit the corruption of the $300,000 through his uh, hotel in D.C. from Saudi Arabia. So it's that moment where, you know, if you're watching that debate and you're a casual outside observer, like let's say you're relatively apolitical. Let's say it was a presidential debate and you're relatively apolitical and you're watching it. You're going to go, oh, that guy's responding like a human being and that guy's a robot on his talking point. And so, you know, when I watched it, and by the way, there's a, a best of that was just released on the Secular Talk YouTube channel last night. Definitely check that out. And you'll see, it's my interpretation of it really bears out because you have him going all over the place and that I will interject with one example or one counterpoint or one punchy line. And then all of a sudden, everything he just built up for the past three and a half minutes is in tatters and he has to start from square one. So everybody check that out. Um, there were at least three or four moments that I really loved. Probably the best one being him, like, condescendingly saying, like, what, do you want the president to divest from all of his assets? <laughs> Absolutely, of course. That's the way it has to work with a monument, especially if, you're, if you are technically it's legal to profit from a business as, it, you know, when you're president. But it's definitely not legal to take any money from foreign governments. And Trump has been doing that. That's a fact. Trump and his team have been doing that. That's a fact. I mean, the Bank of China is, you know, one of the people at one of his properties. You can't be profiting from the Bank of China as your president. You can't take money from Saudi Arabia through your hotel in D.C. Like, this is... The answer is obviously, yes, you have to divest from those assets. But he was saying it as if it was a gotcha to me. Like, oh, you want him to just divest from all of his assets? And, of course, I screamed, yes, absolutely, yes. And the crowd blew up. And that was one of you know, the biggest moments of the debate where I think the biggest punch was landed. Um, so, you know, that was my perception of the Charlie Kirk debate. I think the people who think that um, – the people who think that he did a good job are just caught on the fact that he spoke for the majority of the time. But I don't that's – not, that's not a good indicator of who won the debate or who made the best point. That's just an indicator of, as some people called it, um, gish galloping. He just throws a thousand things out there and hopes that it overwhelms people into thinking that he's making good points when really he's a robot on his partisan, hacky, Republican talking points list. Um, now, just to – Respond real quick because, you know, the, the debate started with Trump's tax cuts. And, oh, my God, is it good? Is it bad? Every argument he used in that, in that part of the debate was beyond ridiculous. Like, he, he was bringing up the average amount of money that went to, went to your average middle-class family. And my response to that was, yeah, Jeff Bezos and I have an average net worth of $50 billion dollars. So the point that that's supposed to make, and the audience got it because there was a big reaction when I said it, the point that that's supposed to make is you're using the most ridiculous metric to determine whether or not this was a tax cut that really helped average people. Because the reality is, again, I'm blown away by some of these facts to this day. According to the Tax Policy Center, under that tax bill, 
your run-of-the-mill poor person got a tax cut of $40. The mega-rich, the top 0.01%, they got $937,700. Okay, 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. Again, that's according to the Tax Policy Center. Um, the Economic Policy Institute, he was talking about wages. Everything he said was wrong about that. The Economic Policy Institute um, recently released the numbers, and the growth target for nominal wages to keep up with inflation is 3.5% to 4%. What's the actual wage growth? It is 3.2%. So in other words, wages are not keeping up with inflation. That's not true. Wages are, are stagnant, and they've been stagnant since the 1980s. And then we haven't even gotten into... Um, you know, the anti-Obamacare provision in his tax bill, which made it so that 7 million Americans lost their insurance. And when the full impact of the tax bill takes effect, it will be 13 million Americans that are going to lose their insurance, their health insurance, because of that tax bill. And this is according to uh, Gallup data. And it's just the bill polls at 33 percent. It polls at 33 percent. So if he wants to defend that, by all means, he can go right ahead. That's the other moment that people really like this when I told him what the effective tax rate is, the effective tax rate is about 12% for corporations, and his response was, oh, well, it should be zero. I was like, okay, that's a very unpopular position. Please proceed. That's another moment that people liked in the debate. Um, but bottom line is, he was all over the place. He was meandering. He was a talking point machine, and I would just interject every now and then and punch giant gaping holes in his arguments. And so I think that the debate went really well. Definitely check out the best of that debate if you haven't yet. Uh, it should be a, you know, one of the recent videos on the Secular Talk YouTube channel. Okay, now finally, let's talk a little bit about Joe Rogan. So there's a couple things that people are talking about uh, post this uh, podcast. And one of them is about Rave Dubin. So there were two cuts in the podcast. There were two cuts where you see Joe Rogan bring up classical liberalism. And it looks like he's about to, you know, say more on the subject, and then boom, it cuts off and it kind of hops forward, and he's talking about still classical liberalism, but not about any particular individual by the name of Ray Dubin. Unfortunately, I have to tell everybody, the conspiracy theory is not true. Um, he was not talking about Ray Dubin in the cuts there. Uh, I don't know how much of this he wants me to give away, because he cut it out for a reason, but I will say... He just made an analogy that could have easily been misconstrued when talking about classical liberalism. He said, oh, saying you're a classical liberal is like saying you're this and this, and the this and this that he said, again, I'm not saying it because Joe cut it out for a reason, but it was something where people could have said to him, hey, man, are you saying all classical liberals are this and this? When no, the point wasn't classical liberals are like this. The point was, it's an analogy about putting a spin on a label. You understand? So he didn't want people to think he was saying all classical liberals are X. So he pulled it out just to take out any of the, um, you know, just to kill any of the, um, the misperceptions or misconstruing of his words up front. Uh, it's not a common thing for Joe to cut stuff out, but at the same time, Somebody sitting in the room, because I actually told him at the exact, right when he said the thing that he said that he wanted to cut out, I actually said to him, dude, people are going to misconstrue that. And he was like, yeah, yeah, maybe we'll cut that out. So, but unfortunately it wasn't about Rave Dubin. There was nothing about Rave Dubin that was said 
on air. Not a word about Rave Dubin was said on air. Uh, so anyway, that, that's the first thing that I wanted to respond to. The second thing I wanted to respond to was the idea that people were saying I was high as balls, <laughs> that I was on Adderall. Unfortunately, I have to tell everybody that's not true either. Before doing the podcast, I had caffeine. And then during the podcast, about, I don't know, maybe half of the way through or something like that, uh, Rogan asked me if I wanted turmeric coffee, to which I responded, sure, I'll have some, because when in Rome, why not? I'm on the Joe Rogan podcast. He could have offered me elk meat. He could have offered me DMT, and I'd be like, let's do it, dog. <laughs> so I had caffeine before going in and then caffeine while on air, and I was fucking bouncing off the walls. And I said when the podcast ended, Joe, we could have gone for five hours. I meant it. We could have talked for five hours easy, easy peasy. So I hate to uh, burst everybody's bubble on that one, too. I will say I have no objection to taking Adderall. Like, I would would I have taken Adderall? If somebody offered me Adderall before I did the Joe Rogan podcast, would I have taken it? Hell yeah, I would have taken it. And I would have told you guys that I took it. Why not? But I just, I wasn't on Adderall. Um, and then also, I, listen, I enjoyed the podcast. It was a lot of fun. Um, but what's interesting is, and this has happened a bunch now. So it's like you have the trolls who are waiting up front to dislike the video. And that's always what happens, especially when there's any lefty guest on, whether it's me or Abby Martin or Jimmy Dore or whoever it might be. Um, it's like there are people who are, are the trolls, and they just want to dislike up front. And so what you see is the first time I went to the video, I was like, oh, that's a shame. I, don't, I wonder why you know, so many people disliked it, because the disparities may be 80% likes, 20% dislikes. And 20% is hefty for, for dislikes. And then what happens is, of course, you come back a day later, you come back two days later, and the dislikes get less and less and less and less. And there's a comment that I like because somebody, somebody said this. They were like, yeah, the more I listen and the more I give him a chance to talk, the more I like him. And then, of course, there were examples of, uh, you know, people saying, and this is my favorite stuff to read, hey, I'm a conservative, but, yeah, I think this guy's reasonable. I might not agree with him on this, this, and this, but, um, you know, I, I like hearing his perspective. I like hearing his opinion, and I think he's honest. I love that. I love that. That that means the world to me. Um, and we did get a lot of those comments. And uh, what I liked about the conversation is it was so wide-ranging. Joe and I hit so many issues. And um, so, yeah, everybody watch it if you haven't watched it yet. It's definitely a fascinating podcast. And I want to say thank you to Joe as well because he said something that really made me smile. Um, he told me He called me his favorite uh, online political commentator. And honestly, man, that means a lot. That means a lot because I'm a big fan of Joe Rogan's podcast and, um, you know, I watch it. I, I don't watch every episode, but, you know, I do watch the overwhelming majority of them. And um, it means a lot to hear him say that. That's a that's a, quite an endorsement. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to get too mushy and emotional on people, but that that was uh, that was a big moment where uh, it felt really good to hear that. So anyway, a big thank you to Joe Rogan. He, as he always says when we go there, oh, let's do these more often. I told him, you got to get me on a plane. you got to force me on a plane because I hate flying, man. I hate flying. Um, but I'm sure there will be a bunch of uh, these coming up in the future as well. So anyway, that's my breakdown. Politicon was fun in Nashville, Tennessee. Love Nashville, by the way. And um, in L.A., the Joe Rogan experience was fun. Also, I did TYT's The Conversation with Jay Uger. Him and I sparred on Bernie versus Warren. You guys can check that out as well. But uh, interesting travels, uh, but I will say I'm happy to be back in the studio doing the normal show now.
Okay, next. Goodness gracious. <clears throat> I'm, yeah, you could hear the congestion in my voice. 100%. <clears throat> All right, let's go to Donald Trump making fun of Bet on My Stork, who has now officially dropped out of the race. God damn it, I'm so happy that I'm back on air. <laughs> There's a little presidential candidate by the name of Beto O'Rourke. Uh, also known as Bet on My Stork. And um, he has officially dropped out of the race. He's no longer a presidential candidate. Um, hey, man. <laughs> I'm a little sad to see him go, even though that we all knew that this day was coming. You know, um, somebody was telling me how he actually had kind things to say about Bernie Sanders recently. And um, he, you did start feeling bad for him over the past month or so, because he was just flailing all over the place. I mean, not just literally with his arms, because he was also doing that, but he was flailing all over the place, and he um, he was doing so poorly in the polls, and you almost you could almost sense the desperation and the sadness on him. And um, as a human being, you watch that and you go, oh, man, this is, this is rough. And the main takeaway here is Beto was largely a media creation. So, yes, he did well running against Ted Cruz for Senate in Texas. But you have to remember, guys, Ted Cruz is Ted Cruz. <laughs> and he's, like, uniquely awkward and unlikable and weird. And um, also, at the time, and I know this feels like a million years ago now, but at the time, Ben O'Rourke was running a Bernie Sanders-style campaign. He was pretending to be way further left than he actually is. He was talking about Medicare for All. He had ads out about Medicare for All and how he supports Medicare for All. Um and he was his main thing. He always spoke about how he takes no corporate PAC money, and he hates the big money, the corrupt, the corrupting influence of big money in politics. And so he was he was posturing his way far left. And then what happened was towards the end of the election with Ted Cruz, he ran to the center and he backed off of Medicare for all, and all the enthusiasm came out of his campaign. And listen, I'm definitely of the belief that if Beto O'Rourke never did the pivot, never shifted to the right then I think he probably could have beaten Ted Cruz. He would have done it. Um, and then when he launched his presidential campaign, there wasn't even a hint of, I'm going to try to take that left lane and be like Bernie Sanders. Again, no. He was pretty clearly planting his flag as a centrist. Um, and then the only issues where he tried to outflank everybody on the left were issues where the polls say, that's not an issue where you should outflank everybody on the left. So if you wanted to outflank everybody on the left on whatever it might be, unionization, on the minimum wage, on health care, whatever it might be, that's going to help you. And that's going to help you because the polls show it's going to help you. You try to outflank everybody on the left on guns, and you literally argue for gun confiscation as he did, a mandatory buyback program. The polls on that are not overwhelming in your favor. Now, listen, if he believes that as a matter of principle, and props to him for just being honest and upfront about, about that, but my thought the second I saw him do that was, oh, he's, um, he doesn't believe this as a matter of principle. This is a strategy. It's a strategy to try to get elected. He knows he has to outflank some, uh, all the candidates on their left, but he needs to pick, pick an issue to do it. And the issue he picked was just the wrong issue to do it. You know? And this is coming from a guy, listen, I'm in favor of um, you know, 
universal background checks. I'm in favor of banning high-capacity magazines. I'm in favor of a cadre of, of gun reform proposals, all the standard ones, all the basic ones. If you want to give, if you want to say a voluntary gun buyback program, I'm with you. I think that's a great idea. Some sort of licensing system, I'm with you. But mandatory gun confiscation, mandatory buyback, I don't think even I go that far. So who are you appealing to? I mean, again, that's not a majority position. Mandatory gun confiscation, that's not something, even among the Democratic base, that's not necessarily. I mean, some people like it, and that's fine, but it's not something that's going to win you an election or even just bring you forward in the polls at all. So um, it's that mixed with the fact that, listen, when you have a camera on you for as long as you do when you're running for president, you can't fake it. You're not going to be able to fake it that long because your true colors come out over after a while. And the thing about Beto's true colors is, he doesn't have any true colors. And I hate to sound so rude and mean here, but he's really calculating. He's really calculating. There's multiple layers of analysis. All he cares about is becoming president. And so he, does, he doesn't know who he is. Like, he's not just himself running for president, comfortable in his own skin, secure, comfortable in his policy positions. No. All of that other stuff is up in the air. And he will try to be whatever you want him to be to get elected. And you can't please everybody. And, of course, it showed, man, on the campaign trail, it showed that he kind of had no identity, was not secure in who he was, was not secure in his policy positions, wasn't even secure in his style running for office. So he was just a little too weird and a little too calculating. And here's the saddest part of all. Now, is he going to run for the Senate? He says now he's not going to. I think he is going to do it. Okay, I think he is going to run for the Senate. I don't think he's going to win. He's not going to win. And Beto might struggle to get elected to any seat from here on out. Why? Because he's a politician in Texas, and he just ran on gun confiscation. (laughs) So, I mean, you want to talk about digging your political grave. Wherever Beto runs, there will be a giant wave of Republicans on the other side to defeat him. So that means he needs to turn out his own side way more, especially in a state like Texas, And how the hell is he going to do that when he already backed off of Medicare for All? He already backed off of the positions that would fire up his base. So it was political mistake on top of political mistake on top of political mistake. And um, I really do think he may have shot his chances in the foot of being in any elected position from here on out, man. So that's the reality. And in honor of him stepping down, we have a video of Donald Trump at one of his recent rallies. (laughs) Making fun of Beto. Take a look. Oh, did you hear? Beto, Beto, did you hear? Beto. Oh, that poor poor pathetic guy. He was pathetic. Remember the arms are flailing. Remember that? You know? He ran against Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz won. He spent almost $100 million. And Ted Cruz and I helped Ted, and we campaigned together, and it was good. But I used to watch him. Then when he came onto the really big stage, this crazy stage, I noticed he was flailing with the arms, and he was standing on tables. He was standing on countertops. I said, does he ever, like, stand on the floor and speak? But he's waving his arms and going crazy, and I said, what the hell is he doing? What is he on? He made a total fool out of himself. And he came out of Texas, 
the great state of Texas. He came out of Texas, a very hot political property, and he went back as cold as you can be. I mean, it's true. <laughs> You remember his fundraising numbers? Initially, everybody's like, oh my god, this is a serious candidate. He's rivaling Bernie's numbers. You can only fake it for so long, man. You can only fake it for so long. How's this guy going to generate that genuine grassroots enthusiasm when he says nothing? He says nothing on the campaign trail. It's all an act. Again, I'm sorry if that's too harsh, too tough. I, feel, I do feel kind of bad for him now, but like... Yeah, it all fizzled out. It fizzled out relatively quickly. This is not a movement candidate. And probably the biggest lesson to take away from this, guys, is Beto was largely a media creation because they really hyped him up at the beginning like, oh, my God, he's going to be one of the front runners and all that stuff. You have guys like Nate Silver, uh, Jennifer Rubin, the conservative from, I think, the New York Times. They were all like, yeah, Beto's underrated. Yeah. And he's going to get all that grassroots enthusiasm. And they were just wrong. They were just dead wrong. So when something is a media creation, when someone is a media hype, he's like the flavor of the moment. That's not going to last. That's not going to last. Because you have to keep it up and actually get people on your side, and they will turn on you at some point. And look at what happened with all the Republicans. When Trump won in 2016, they tried to force on us Jeb Bush, that lasted for two and a half seconds, and then he faded into oblivion. They tried to force on us Marco Rubio. That didn't work. They even had a brief moment with John Kasich. And eventually they finally settled, okay, we'll take Ted Cruz over Trump. And they couldn't get him over the edge either. So the media, I mean, you could go back and look at the, you know, the pictures, I think, from Time Magazine and others, where it'll, it'll be like a picture of Chris Christie, and it's like, Republican savior? No. <laughs> Or Marco Rubio, they do the same thing. It's like, no, no. So, and this is why, you know, as Bernie supporters, we need to be careful because sometimes we get lost and angry at the media because they treat our candidate like garbage. But in today's day and age, in a weird way, that might help him. It might help him. Because Trump got relentless negative coverage from the media, and he won. So the real, the real problem is indifference. That's when you hit the panic button. If they just act like you don't even exist, okay? And sometimes they do that with Bernie, and if they go all in on the indifference path, then we're in trouble. Because then it's like, you know, if nobody ever talks about him in mainstream media, then people think like, oh, he must not be doing well, or, you know, is he still in the race, or whatever it might be. But if they're attacking him, oh, people know he's in the race. And usually the nature of the attacks are so incredibly hacky that it could help Bernie. Listen, I'm a big believer in if the media attacks you and there's merit to it, it could hurt you. But if the media attacks you and they're misfiring on their focus and what they're attacking you on, it could help you. And so with Bernie, I think there's a chance that the dynamic backfires on the media and it ends up helping him that they treat him so terribly. Um, again, when they don't talk about it at all, when they're indifferent, that's a problem. But when they go after him and they have terrible arguments against him, that helps them. Um, now, in the case of Beto, it was all hype, but it was all bogus. There was no there there, but they were still trying to pump him up. And now he's out of the election before, <laughs> before even the Iowa caucus. Wow, who'd have thought, man? 
So there you have it. Bet on my stork is gone, and our big beefy president is making fun of him. Okay. President Obama is back in the news. This is from about a week ago, but I can't help myself. I have to talk about it. Oh, did I not get No, I do. I have it. I have it. I thought I didn't get the clip properly, but I have it. Here we go. So President Obama emerged from his hideout um, to slam purity tests and woke culture. This is really interesting. Let's take a look, and then I'll tell you guys my take on it. You know, this, this idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, I, you should get over that quickly. The world, the world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the word wrong verb or then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because, man, you see how woke I was? I called you out. I'm going to get on TV, <laughs> watch my show, watch Gronish. Um, you know, that's not... That's not activism. That, that's not bringing about change. Let me explain to you guys the clever trick that he's doing here. And here's the thing, man. He's like one of the smarter establishment Democrats. Like, he's intelligent, which is why when he ran for president, he beat John McCain, he beat Mitt Romney. And you'll notice that when it was campaign season – he sounded a lot more anti-establishment, a lot more progressive, because he, he can read a room better than your standard establishment Democrat. Um, you know, any really good politician has that natural ability to kind of know what the room wants to hear. And this is a talent that a lot of politicians who want to get to that next level lack. So take somebody like Kamala Harris, no idea how to read a room, no idea how to read a room, no idea how to change gears, no idea how to craft arguments that kind of appeal broadly. And But uh, honestly, Trump actually is very good at this thing, uh, at this whole politics thing where he can read the temperature of a room and, and just work off of that. And Obama's really good at it, too. So here's the clever trick that he's doing. There are two interpretations of what he's saying here. One interpretation is not only reasonable, I 100% agree with it, and then one interpretation is I 100% disagree with it. So the thing that I agree with is the whole, like, oh, we live in a politically correct age, and people are oversensitive, and people will slam you for misspeaking, saying the wrong word, they'll search for old tweets, and they'll try to tear you down, and, like, you know, you're not really doing anything that's not really positive, that's not activism. That's not making a change in the world. You're just the authoritarian PC police. And, you know, you're policing words instead of 
getting involved in politics in a way that really improves people's lives, okay? That's the positive interpretation of what he's saying. That's the thing that he's implying there that I totally agree with. But here's the clever trick. You'll notice there he kind of mushed two issues together. He mushed together like woke outrage culture and, quote, purity tests. Hmm. Hmm. What are you getting at, Obama? Now, here's the, the little bait and switch he does. What he's kind of referring to is not just the, you know, the social justice warrior PC police stuff where people get outraged over the wrong word. What he's also referring to is, man, when people come after me and say, I didn't do a good job as president, when people come after me for saying, oh, my God, Obamacare is basically just Romney care, it's a right-wing health care reform, when people come after me and say, I left the NSA as is, and if anything, I expanded their spying powers, when people come after me and say, my drone strikes killed 90% civilians, this is the kind of purity test, like, get over it, the world is messy. The world is messy. I did as good as I could. Sure, whatever, there were some downsides, but look past that. And he's meshing together these two issues, one of them being woke outrage culture and the other one being his job as president. And he's trying to say, everybody who's really mad at me for all the bad things I did, that's just woke outrage culture. And that's the part where I totally disagree with him, 100% disagree with him, because then... Any negative thing that you've ever done, you just kind of lump into that basket. Like, oh, you're mad at me for policy X, Y, or Z? Woke outrage culture. No, that's not woke outrage culture. That's intelligent outrage culture. It is genuinely outrageous that you killed 90% civilians with your drone strikes. It is genuinely outrageous that you expanded the NSA spying powers. You know, it's, it's genuinely outrageous that you waged a war on whistleblowers. So... That's what's frustrating about this is, and again, this shows you how much more intelligent Obama is from all the other establishment Democrats. The other establishment Democrats will just come out and say, you can't get mad at Obama. He did a great job. He didn't even do anything wrong. That's what other establishment Democrats will say. Obama is too intelligent for that. So he goes out there and he's, he, he couches it and he makes it a more palatable argument where there's a little conflation there. Oh, well, you know, if you're mad at me for things I've done that are wrong, Really, you're no different than the PC police, social justice warrior, authoritarian left outrage brigade, aren't you? It's no different than, you know, policing people's language. Oh, what are you just going to call people out on Twitter? Is that what you're going to do? It's a brilliant political move on his part. So now he set it up so that if you disagree with him on stuff he did, I'm sorry, I guess you're part of the PC police. I guess you're part of woke outrage culture. No, people who genuinely care about substantive political issues can come after you, President Obama. Because there were many things you did that were wrong. That's not saying I won't give him credit when he does something right, like when he kept freeing nonviolent drug offenders towards the end of his time in office. I think that was wonderful. I think the Iran deal was wonderful. Plenty of stuff you did where I'll give him credit. But I'm also going to criticize you where you're wrong. And that doesn't mean I'm part of the PC police. That doesn't mean I'm part of woke outrage culture. No. It means I actually want to fix the system. And that's why he slipped in purity tests. They're like, oh, the left obsessed with these purity tests. Well, no, if by purity test you mean we have standards when it comes to policies and we want our politicians to reflect that, that's called being a human being with ideas and policies and preferences. That's called being a, an adult with a brain. That's what that's called. So, yeah, do I want you to be for Medicare for all if you're a Democrat running? Yes. 
Do I want you to be for free college? Yes. Do I want you to be for a living wage? Yes. Do I want you to be in favor of ending the wars? Yes. So what he's saying is like, oh, no, if you actually have things you want politicians to believe in, that's outrage culture. That's woke outrage culture. No, you need to, you need to just accept a generic Democrat for being a generic Democrat because they're better than Republicans and shut off. That's it. Oh, Democrats better than Republicans. You don't disagree with that, do you? Okay, then shut up and just accept a Democrat. Shut up and accept what I did because I'm not as bad as a Republican. So if you criticize me, woke outrage culture. You see the trick? Guys, don't, don't fall for that, please. I actually agree on the point. If you divorce it from the purity test argument, divorce it from the fact that he's trying to lump in all criticism against him in that basket, I actually agree with the point that, you know, we need to have, I think Ben Burgess calls it, an emotionally intelligent left that's not lashing out over these side issues and the use of words and just waiting to write an outraged blog. I actually agree with that. But as much as we need to be understanding and reasonable in that sphere, we need to be as uncompromising and rigid in the sphere of actual policy. Because they ain't going to do what we want them to do unless we force them to do it. And part of forcing them to do it is saying, I will not budge. Do you want my vote? Here's what you got to be for. So anyway, that's my breakdown of this. I'm telling you, man, he's just smarter than the other establishment Democrats. They would never know how to craft an argument that excuses their BS with such a high degree of skill, like he just did right there. Um, so, and that's, hey, that's one of the reasons why he was president. He knows how to talk. He knows how to craft a point, And it works. So, but just know, the, whole, the main reason he did that was to say, any criticism of me and how I did as president is woke outrage culture. And that's not true. We got Elizabeth Warren's um, Medicare for All plan. Here we go. So Elizabeth Warren released her plan to pay for Medicare for All. Um, let's see what she has to say about it, and then I'm going to break it down further for you. I have a plan for Medicare for All, and I'm proud that it's first health care plan by anyone in this presidential primary that lays out the full cost and how to pay for it. And here's the deal. It doesn't raise middle class taxes by one penny, not one penny. If we make no other changes over the next 10 years, Americans will reach into their pockets and pay out about $11 trillion on insurance premiums, co-pays, deductibles, and uncovered medical expenses. My plan reduces those costs to zero, sort of like an $11 trillion tax break. So we have two choices. We can maintain the status quo that leaves 24 million uninsured, leaves 63 million with substandard care, and forces Americans to ration medicine and turn to GoFundMe's. 
or we can spend slightly less on Medicare for All, which covers everyone, ensures long-term care for our seniors, and puts $11 trillion back in the pockets of the people by eliminating premiums, co-pays, and deductibles. Now, you might be asking, how can we possibly provide better coverage to more people for less money? Well, it's a two-part answer. Under Medicare for All, we rein in the corruption, the waste, the inefficiency, and the corporate profiteering. That's money we can save and money we can spend on actual care. So we pay less overall for health care to get more real health care coverage. The second part of the answer is to change the structure of who pays for health care in America and how. We're going to take the $11 trillion projected out-of-pocket health care costs over the next 10 years and make that number zero. No more premiums, co-pays, or deductibles. No more out-of-network bills. For middle-class families, that means thousands of dollars back in your pocket every year. Under my plan, existing federal and state spending on health care stays the same. For middle-class families, there'll be no new taxes. Look, you're already paying into Medicare and Medicaid, so you're done. No new taxes, no new costs. Business spending on health care also stays about the same. Payments just go to Medicare instead of to private insurers. That's about $9 trillion in the next 10 years. And we make up the rest largely with taxes on big corporations and the top 1%. So, yeah, for the top 1%, they're going to have to pay their fair share. And corporations are finally going to have to pay the taxes they're meant to pay, just like everyone else. That's it. That's Medicare for All. It covers everyone. It's fully paid for. And independent economists can verify it's doable. All it takes is the courage to fight for it. Insurance companies and drug companies will spend tens of millions of dollars in political contributions and disinformation campaigns to try to keep tens of billions of dollars in profits flowing into themselves. That's corruption, plain and simple. We have to call it out and we have to fight back against it. Because like any big idea, you don't get what you don't fight for. We need a health care system that recognizes that health care is a human right, and I will fight to get it done. Okay, so let me give you the good part of this and the bad part of this. The good part is there's no weasel words about choice. There's no talking about, you know, for-profit health insurance companies and their roles moving forward. Um, so that's definitely a positive that the Overton window has shifted enough where it apparently, obviously Bernie's been the leader on this, but he's kind of dragged Elizabeth Warren with him to the position of stop catering and kowtowing to for-profit insurance companies and crafting everything around their, their continued existence. No. The only role for, um, you know, private health insurance companies, in my opinion, is supplemental health insurance, which is not still abides by that duplicative care provision, which is you can't have a for-profit health insurance company offer the same thing that's covered under a Medicare for all system. Okay. So that's a good thing. And we have to acknowledge that for what it is. Now, the bad part of it is 
she's being a little bit disingenuous in her framing here. So Jeff Stein of the Washington Post tweeted the following. Tax Policy Center's H. Gleckman says the following. Warren's proposal would be regressive. Warren, Warren's indirect levy is effectively a flat tax on all workers at the same firm. By contrast, a straightforward income tax or well-designed payroll tax would be much more progressive. So let me explain that. What's interesting is she tried to craft her policy to answer the critics when the critics say, are you going to raise tax on the middle class? And she's like, no, no, I will not do that. So she tried to craft a policy that abides by that. But in the process of doing that, she just ends up using basically an accounting trick, which does raise taxes on the middle class. Now, it's still, just so everybody knows, okay, because the middle class would still pay a lot less than what they're currently paying. But that gets to the point. It's like, why wouldn't you just make that argument? Why wouldn't you just say that as opposed to trying to do a trick to get around it, which is what she did. So let me give you more specifics on this. Um, this is from Matt Brunig. He's writing in Jacobin, but he's from the People's Policy Project. He's an expert on stuff like this. And he says the following. The proposal is as follows. Employers will be required to pay an employer Medicare contribution equal to 98% of their per-employee health care costs in the year prior to Medicare for, All, for All's implementation. This will mean that initially some employers uh, pay more than others since that is already the case in the status quo. But over time, each employer's contribution will be gradually converged to average employer Medicare contribution until every qualifying employer is paying the same amount per employee. Number two, employers with less than 50 employees would be exempt from the employer Medicare contribution, both initially and forever. Number three, independent contractors and the companies who hire them will also be exempt from the employer Medicare contribution, both initially and forever. He continues, bad distribution. What Warren is proposing here, in ordinary fiscal language, is a Medicare head tax. This is a departure from the normal Medicare payroll tax proposals. The distributive difference between them is that the Medicare payroll tax charges a specific percentage of each worker's earnings, while the Medicare head tax charges a specific dollar amount per worker. To illustrate the difference, I have, I have the following two graphs. The first one shows the difference in terms of employer-side taxes paid by, worker earning, paid by worker earnings level. Under the 8% employer-side payroll tax, the employer taxes uh, paid for a worker earning $15,000 per year is $1,200, while the employer taxes paid for a worker earning $200,000 per year is $16,000. Under the $9,500 employer side head tax, the employer taxes paid, the employer taxes paid is $9,500 for both workers. The second graph is the same as the first, except the vertical axis is done as percent of earnings rather than dollar amounts. In this graph, the $9,500 head tax is equal to 63% of the earnings of the worker, making $15,000 per year, but only equal to 5% of the earnings of the worker making $200,000 per year. For the employer side payroll tax, it is 8% for everyone. Needless to say, the Medicare payroll tax is far superior to the Medicare head tax, distributively speaking. Specifically, the Medicare head tax charges middle and low earners massively more than the Medicare payroll tax does. Elizabeth Warren's team realizes this. The reason they are using the head tax is because they think 
they can trick journalists into declaring that it is not a tax since it is expressed in dollar terms rather than percent terms. On first glance, this might seem like a stretch that probably won't work, but it is a more plausible strategy once you consider that journalists are mostly very stupid and cannot evaluate policy claims on their own, relying instead on trusted sources and names, Warren being one of those names. All right, so let me, let me explain that in as simple terms as possible. I wanted to give you all the details so you get the full picture of it. But let me explain that in as simple terms as possible. The way that Elizabeth Warren pays for her Medicare for All proposal includes, there are a few different ways she pays for it. One of those ways is it's tied to passing immigration reform. Now, I have no problem with that in theory. I think that's fine to, like, redirect, reallocate money, tie it to other pieces of legislation. But it does, objectively speaking, make it harder to pass. It's going to be harder to pass than Bernie's bill, for sure, because you're looping in other issues. It's also my problem with the Green New Deal, by the way, as I've explained to you guys before. I support a Green New Deal, but I support a Green New Deal as defined by, you know, a new New Deal, an infrastructure jobs bill built on, you know, based on green and renewable technology. That's how I support it. They included Medicare for All and all these other things in the Green New Deal, which I think is insane because it makes it impossible to pass and it's just a grab bag of everything the left wants. Treat each issue separately. So what Elizabeth Warren is doing here is she's saying, okay, my, I, I'm not raising a penny of, tax, of taxes on the middle class, but my Medicare for All bill is tied into immigration reform, which will save us money, and also a wealth tax, which raises a tremendous amount of money. Now, again, in theory, I have no problem with looping in other issues and, and you know, putting a bunch of stuff together and paying for it by cutting money in other areas and raising money in other areas, but it definitely makes it harder to pass. Just understand that. So it's a lot less likely this bill gets through than Bernie Sanders' bill. You could say it's unlikely Bernie's gets through as well. True. But this is even more unlikely because she looped in other issues. So this is how she pays for it. Immigration reform, a wealth tax, and then this Medicare head tax, which is what they're talking about here. Uh, and the, the way that she gets out of saying it's a, it's a middle-class tax is, oh, no, it's, it's on, I'm charging the employer. I'm charging the employer, and it's not a percentage. It's a, it's a dollar amount, just a dollar amount. So I can weasel out of it and say it's not technically a tax because it's a dollar amount and not a percent, and it's only for the employer and not the employee. But as you know, it is going to impact the employees as well. And the difference between Bernie's version of funding it and her version of funding it is hers is more regressive. Because she chose to do it as a raw dollar amount, the Medicare head tax, it is more regressive. The other thing is there's ways to weasel out of it, which is um, if businesses say, no, 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 you're not my employee anymore, you're an independent contractor now, then they don't have to pay anything. So Matt Bruni goes on to point out, well, the whole thing can unravel because all these businesses will craft themselves to weasel out of paying for it. Whereas with Bernie's proposal, they can't weasel out of paying for it. No matter what they do, they have to pay it. Hers, there's this giant loophole. Oh, you want to be, instead of being my employee, now I'm going to make you an independent contractor. And they say, oh, companies with 50 people or less, they don't have to, they're not required to do anything. Okay, well, then all these companies are going to break down into subdivisions and have only 50 people working for each branch. So there are ways around it. There are ways out of it. And that's the problem, is that it is going to raise taxes on the middle class, and it's going to do it in a more regressive way than Bernie's bill did it. So she crafted this bill to just try to get out of that argument. Now, the stunning thing about this is 
she even said in one of her debates, she was like, no, the, the thing that matters is costs for the middle class comes down. Cost comes down. So if you have, if I eliminate your premiums, your co-pays, and your deductibles, that's basically a private tax because you have to pay it. If I eliminate that, so let's say that's $10,000. Let's say I say, here's the 10000 put it right in your pocket. And then my Medicare for All proposal, you're going to pay $8,000 in new public taxes. I just saved you $2,000. So it doesn't matter that I raised public taxes. I saved you $2,000 because I eliminated the private taxes, the premiums, copies, and deductibles. Instead of making that argument, she's trying to weasel her way out of having that conversation at all. And she says, no, 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 I don't even raise any middle class taxes at all even though she definitely does because a Medicare head tax is still a tax on the middle class. So I don't listen again. The good part is she's, she's not saying anything about we'll still have a role for for profit insurance companies. And I believe in choice. She dropped that language, which is definitely a good thing. But the bad thing is she's using very, weaselly arguments here and a very strange funding method just to try to get around criticisms that are bogus criticisms anyway. So, you know, you should have, you should just be forthright. And also you should use the most progressive method to fund Medicare for all. And she's not, she's using a more regressive method just to get around a talking point, which is a bullshit talking point anyway, for mainstream media. So anyway, that's the problem with, uh, with Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for All proposal. Now, I just want to say, just to, like, so we need to be able to call it out and criticize it as we're doing, okay? While also saying it's still good that her plan doesn't make room for the, <laughs> for the for-profit health insurance company. That's still a good idea and a good point. And she's closer to Bernie on this, unfortunately, than all the other candidates. And that, I mean that. I mean that, you know, I, I don't agree with Tulsi's Medicare choice move because she says you can keep your employee, uh, employer or union insurance. I don't agree with that because then the for-profit health insurance companies have too much of a market share and the public option is going to be chronically underfunded because the for-profit companies will try to put all the sick people in there and you don't have a single payer anymore. So I don't agree with Tulsi's bill. Yang has totally backtracked on Medicare for all. We'll get to that story later. He's more on the side of public option. He just is. Um, so it's Warren's bill is closest to Bernie than the other ones, but it's still not as good as Bernie's. It's just not as good as Bernie's. His is more progressive, um, and his is more honest because he didn't build his whole bill just trying to weasel out of a specific nonsense criticism from the media. So anyway, that's my breakdown of her Medicare for All bill. And then also, listen, the final point I'll make is this, and you guys already know this, but I have to bring it up again because I think it's true. I just don't think she's going to actually fight for it. I don't. I think that she knows this is the primary and I'm going to head fake in that direction because that's where the energy is in the party. But I don't think she's actually going to fight for it. I don't think it's in her top priorities. Um, and that's her prerogative. She cares more about Wall Street. She cares more about taxes. She cares more about trade. But I think it's really clear that he's going to go to the mat for this policy and she's going to relatively quickly back off of it and start agreeing with other Democrats and then working with the Republicans. 
because she has previously said, and this is something Bernie has never said, but she has previously said, oh, the heart of where all the Democrats are is the same. We want more people with coverage, and we want them to pay less. So in other words, whether it's Medicare for All Extra, whether it's um, Medicare Choice, whether it's public option, whether it's expanding Obamacare, all of that she thinks is wonderful. It's all great. And the Democrats are all right on this, and the Republicans are all wrong on this. Fundamentally disagree with that. We need to take on more than half the Democratic Party and the entire Republican Party in Washington, D.C. to get this bill passed, and I don't think she's going to do that. Now, the counterargument to what I'm saying is, okay, well, then there's no plan she could have released where I would have totally been satiated, and I would have totally been like, okay, give her full credit. Yeah, that's true, but I'm admitting that up front. And I said it in my debate with Jane Huger. I just don't think that this is on the top of her priorities list, and it is on the top of my priorities list. It's one of my top three issues, so... I care deeply about it, and she's just not as strong as Bernie on it. So that is what it is, but there's my breakdown of her Medicare for All bill. It's not the worst thing in the world, but there's a lot of loopholes and a lot of Weasley stuff about it, um, and Bernie's is just better. Okay. All right, let me do one more, then we'll take a break. So Joe Manchin went on Fox Business Network, and he said the quiet part loud. It's uh, the Bernie Sanders night. Would you support his agenda? Uh, absolutely not. Bernie and I have had many conversations. I think that Bernie brings a lot to the table. It makes you think a little bit. Kind of uh, just uh, gets the blood going and stirring everything. But it's not practical where I come from. And Bernie keeps saying Medicare for all. I said, Bernie, we can't even pay for Medicare for some. I said, right now the trust fund's going to go broken by 2026. And these are people who paid into it and earned it. Now you want to expand it. What happens? So it doesn't make sense at all. What if he were your nominee for president and it's him versus Donald Trump? Who do you vote for? <laughs> well, it wouldn't be Bernie. All right, so it would be the president. Well, let's you leave it blank. It wouldn't be Bernie. Would it be Donald Trump? Uh, well, let's just say I, I'm going to make decisions based on what's best for my country and my state. Oh, boy, does this one get under my skin. Let me explain something to you guys. Bernie Sanders crushed Hillary Clinton in the West Virginia Democratic primary in 2016. Bernie Sanders crushed Hillary Clinton. Who did Joe Manchin end up supporting in the 2016 general election? He endorsed Hillary Clinton. He endorsed Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. So you endorsed Hillary Clinton, who was obliterated in your home state, but you won't endorse the guy who obliterated Hillary Clinton in your home state in 2016. You won't endorse the guy who's a Democrat and is wildly popular in your home state. Joe Manchin is an enemy of the people. He's an enemy of his own people in West Virginia. He operates with the, under the failed mindset and the failed framework of this idea that in order to be a Democrat and be serious, you've got to run to the right and be like Republicans. 
Why do you think average people will like Democrats who sell out to Wall Street and sell out to corporations? Because that's what a right-leaning Democrat is. That's what you are. Joe Manchin recently worked with Republicans on what? Deregulating Wall Street. Show me the coal miner in West Virginia who's like, man, I really wish that they would just give Goldman Sachs more of what they want. I really wish that you would let the greediest guys in the room do whatever they want, make as much money as they want with no rules. They don't exist. So his, his understanding of politics is fundamentally flawed. Joe, it's the populism, stupid. Why did Trump do well in West Virginia? It was the fake populism. Why did Bernie do well in the primary, and why will he do well in the 2020 Democratic primary there? It's the populism. It's the populism. So, but he's fundamentally not a populist. He's not. He's the opposite. He's an elitist. Joe Manchin is deeply, deeply elitist. Now, the other point here is, I was told that you have to fall in line and unify. But weirdly enough, that doesn't apply to Joe Manchin. Imagine if Bernie Sanders came out and he said, listen, sorry, but I'm not going to vote for a centrist Democrat in the 2020 election, in the 2020 general, and I'm not going to campaign for him. Imagine if Bernie came out and said that. Do you have any idea how quickly that story would be in every single media outlet? And there would be such fever-pitched scolding of Bernie Sanders. How could you? You're a traitor. You're stabbing us in the back. Are you working for the Russians? What's the matter with you? Joe Manchin does it? I don't hear anything. This blew up on left Twitter a little bit. Not even a lot, just a little bit. But nobody's even talking about it. So just understand, guys, when they talk about unity, it's a ruse. Unity is what they scream at the left to fall in line to support a centrist. That's what it is. It never works the other way. And by the way, this happened in... Uh, in Politicon, I was on the What Now Democrats panel. The very last question of the night, what did they do? The moderator asked me, if it's not Bernie, would you, are you going to vote for the general election candidate? I was like, weird. You never asked any of them if they would vote for Bernie if he's the nominee, but you say the last question asked me if I would vote for a centrist. Weird how that works. It's almost like this is only used in one direction. And it is only used in one direction. Because Joe Manchin is admitting, I will not support Bernie Sanders. Fair enough, Joe. Fair enough, because we're going to come after your ass. We're going to come after your ass. We are going to do that. And President Bernie Sanders is going to rally in West Virginia against you and for a primary opponent to your left, and you're going to lose. You're going to lose. When President Bernie Sanders gets elected, he's going to have like a 70% approval rating in the entire country. Because that's what happens. When, when presidents get elected, they have a grace period where their approval rating is sky high. Bernie Sanders is going to go all around the country. He's going to rally in West Virginia. He's going to say Medicare for All is number one on our list. He's blocking it. He's blocking it. Joe Manchin is working for the for-profit health insurance companies in Big Pharma. He's screwing you, average West Virginian, which is why I'm supporting Paula Jean Swearingen to Joe Manchin's left, who's primarying him. And you should, too. Guys, we have to acknowledge that there's a civil war going on for the heart of the Democratic Party. We have to acknowledge that. Acknowledge it, and then fight in that civil war on your side. They're doing it. Joe Manchin's doing it. I won't, maybe I'll support Trump. I'm not going to support Bernie Sanders. Oh, God forbid you support a candidate who's for all the popular policy positions that the people in your state want. God forbid you support Medicare for All 
to give everybody health care and pay less money and cut out the mafia middleman. God forbid you support free college and eliminating student loan debt. God forbid you support a Green New Deal, a new New Deal, where we give uh, new jobs to millions of people and to people all through West Virginia. God forbid you do that. No, you have to defend the status quo and defend the corporations. Joe Manchin is an enemy of the people. He's an enemy of the people, and he's admitting, I don't, you would eat my ass. I don't agree with him. I'm a corporatist. Bernie's not a corporatist. That's right. That is the difference. You are a corporatist, and Bernie Sanders is not a corporatist. But I do find it absolutely incredible that he, he masks this, I'm going to do what's best for my country and my state. Your own state says we want Bernie Sanders. That's why Bernie crushed Hillary in the 2016 election. But you won't endorse Bernie, even though he won your state, but you did endorse Hillary, even though she didn't win your state. Hmm. Hmm. Centrism is a brain disease. Centrism is defense of the status quo masked as truth-telling. That's what that is. Centrism is got to defend the corporate status quo because what are we going to do? We can't move past that. We can't be bold. We can't be social democratic. We can't be for a whole new philosophy. So it's going to be masked as truth-telling when really I'm just a defeatist and a slave to the status quo. Thank you, Joe Manchin, for admitting that you're an enemy of the people. Everybody in West Virginia should take note of what he just said. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, Bernie Sanders knocked an issue out of the park when it came to Israel-Palestine. And Nancy Pelosi has some thoughts on Medicare for All for us. Stay right there. We'll be right back with that and much more.
right, y'all. We all back. Motherfucker. We all back. Mmm. He beating Jake Crawford. Have you guys ever had Uncrustables? Like little peanut butter and jelly like pouches that you put in the toaster oven? Those are pretty good. I just had them the first time the other day. I like it. Mm-mm-mm. Okay. All right. Sorry, guys. I'm eating. <laughs> All right. Let's go to Bernie Sanders knocking it out of the park on yet another issue. So this video is over a week old, but I needed to share it with you guys because it's awesome. Um, Bernie knocked it out of the park on another issue here, speaking to J Street. Look at what he said on the issue of Israeli aid. And my solution is to say to Israel, you got $3.8 billion every single year. Right, if you want military aid, you're going to have to fundamentally change your relationship to the people of Gaza. In fact, in fact, I think it is fair to say that some of that $3.8 billion should go right now into humanitarian aid in Gaza. Yeah, um, no other candidate's going to do that. No other candidate's going to do that. Take some of the money that we give to Israel and start giving it to Gaza in humanitarian aid. You know, one of the most awesome moments, Loki, um, during the last presidential race, during the last primary in 2016, <clears throat> is that when Bernie Sanders spoke about the issue of Israel and Palestine, he actually referenced the unemployment rate in Gaza. And that's a moment of other candidates tend to, like, dehumanize Palestinians or talk about them as if they're all terrorists. Um and that was like a clear moment of humanization where he's like, oh, my God, the place like Gaza is terrible right now. And the unemployment rate is through the roof. And um, Bernie's one of the only candidates who speaks about, you know, innocent people around the world who are victims of uh, U.S. empire as human beings, as human beings who deserve rights and deserve a, a fruitful life. And uh, yeah, this is an issue that I love. It, it's, it's the same, he said the same thing or something very similar when talking about Netanyahu saying that um, we're not going to allow in Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. And Bernie went on TV that night and said, okay, well, um, then why should we give you a giant subsidy? Why should the U.S. give you billions of dollars every year if you're not even, you're going to disrespect our Congress people? You're going to disrespect our Congress people. So Bernie has made crystal clear he will leverage Israeli aid to get them to do the right thing. I mean, 
when they're doing an illegal occupation that's never ending, yeah, you have to do that. You have to use U.S. aid. Now, it's not like all the candidates, like the candidates still don't go as far as I would like on this issue, but he goes farther than anybody in the modern political era, which is a wonderful thing. So here he is again, man. And understand, guys, this takes political courage because you know what they do. You know what they do when you disagree with Israel and you go after Israel. Look what happened to Ilhan Omar when she was calling out the Israeli lobby money in the system. She was talking about AIPAC, and she said it's all about the Benjamins, baby, and they acted like, you know, she's a fan of Himmler. Like, no, she wasn't saying anything anti-Semitic. She was saying big money influences politics, including the Israeli lobby. Why is it that everybody understands that point when it's the Saudi lobby, but they don't understand it when it's Israel? It's a little ridiculous. So Bernie knows, but, you know, he also has, he could always tell people, and this is something that other candidates don't have, but he's a Jewish American. So you can call him anti-Semitic if you want, but I'm pretty sure he wants peace and dignity for everybody. So another great moment from Bernie Sanders, and um, he will continue to hit us with issues like this that uh, bring a smile to our face. Okay. All right, now... We're going to go, sorry, the sickness is still here, guys. Still a little sick, so I apologize for the blowing of my nose and whatnot. All right, last week, Trump spoke about Syria. We're playing catch-up a little bit, if you can't tell, but all these are necessary stories that we have to talk about. Do I have, of course, I don't have the Trump as a standalone. Here we go. So last week, oh shit, I gotta change the graphic. So last week, Trump spoke about the situation in Syria, and um, he said something that should be a national scandal, but it's not. Secured the stable area. We've secured the oil, and therefore a small number of U.S. troops will remain in the area where they have the oil, and we're going to be protecting it, and we'll be deciding what we're going to do with it in the future. In any event, by the moves that we've made, we're achieving a much more peaceful and stable area. We've secured the oil, and we're figuring out what to do with it. Honestly, it's incredible at this point. It's incredible. Trump took the logic of U.S. empire and ran it into the end zone. Whereas all the other presidents are, uh, you know, they kind of dance around it and they cloak everything in arguments about humanitarianism and altruism and the world order and international law. Yes, that's why we do what we do. We want to help people. He comes out there, he's like, unbelievable, tremendous. Listen, so we stole the oil, (laughs) and it's wonderful. It's a beautiful thing. It's some of the most beautiful oil you've ever seen. So we stole the oil, and we're looking at what we're going to do with it from here, but we stole the oil, and that's totally fine. (laughs) All right, he didn't say steal, but he said we secured the oil, and we're figuring out what to do with it. Guys, that's Syrian oil. 
That's what it is. That's not up in the air. That's not a question. That's not a maybe. That's not a, uh, what's your interpretation? No, it is Syrian oil on Syrian land, full stop. And he's like, we secured it. That means we, it's ours. We took it. Imagine for a second it worked the other way. Imagine China said, sure, we invaded Texas, and sure, we uh, you know, forcefully took over the areas where um, there's oil. But it's okay, because we're us, and we say it's okay. <laughs> You're like, are you insane? That's an act of war. Get out. Get out of here. Get off of our homeland. What are you doing? So we do it, and he just announces it casually. By the way, media, nowhere to be found. Nowhere. Nowhere. Amazing. Guys, this is how far we are down the rabbit hole. Everybody, listen, I've never seen better evidence. This is proof that everybody in mainstream media internalizes the logic of U.S. empire. Because this isn't a story. Nobody's talking about this. So that means they all look at it and they're all like, well, yeah, I mean, he secured the oil. There's no problem with that. There's no problem. Are you kidding me? All of the outrage, oh, my God, Donald Trump in the phone call said this. All the nonstop outrageous coverage. When we have something that's genuinely outrageous, crickets. They're nowhere. They're nowhere. Dude just said he's stealing a sovereign country's oil in contravention of U.S. law and international law. And it's a nice day outside, isn't it? I don't see anything happening here. Something wrong? Something going on that's wrong? I don't see anything that's wrong. Unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. Listen, this isn't a thing. This isn't an option. This isn't on the table. It's not part of what we could do. And by the way, Assad gave an interview recently, and they kind of took what he said out of context a little bit. But one of the things he said was, oh, Trump's great because he's like the most transparent president. The rest of the quote is, every other U.S. president would want to take the oil, and they do it, or they would pretend like they're doing other they're, you know, doing some humanitarian mission. Trump drops the tap dance and he's like, no, I'm going to steal the oil. So he says, you have to respect the transparency because he shows the world what the American empire is really like. And I saw some hilarious uh, tweets where somebody said, I think it was the law boy on Twitter. He was like, it's pretty sad that like a brutal dictator is more correct about the United States than any, you know, media pundit in mainstream media. I mean, he really did just say, like, we secured the oil. We're not making the same mistake we did in Iraq. Just so you know, because there's still going to be people, this is about helping people, that's why we do what we do. At least in part, at least in part, Iraq had to do with oil. Oil production shot through the roof when we went there. Afghanistan has to do with trillions of dollars in mineral wealth. Uh, It all has to do with geopolitical power and control and jockeying for position on this global chessboard against China and Russia. And also it has to do with the military-industrial complex. A lot of people get really, really rich when we're a perpetual war. And we sell weapons to some of the most brutal, vicious regimes on the planet because it makes people money. We have jobs tied to machines of death in all 50 states. Don't tell me the incentive is we just care about civilians. That's all it is. We just care about civilians, and we're a humanitarian country. Trump is doing everything but saying it here. Yeah, it's about the oil, and we're going to take the oil. 
By the way, the response shouldn't have been um, in the media and from the Democrats. Oh, my God, you're withdrawing from northern Syria. You should stay there forever. That ended up being the response. Like, you should just stay there. No, the response had to be, yes, get out of northern Syria, but have UN peacekeepers come in or have the Syrian government make a deal with the Kurds before we leave to prevent the Turkish invasion. So, unfortunately, we have a media that has the intelligence level of a gnat. And they're reflective and they're reactionary. And whatever Trump does, you're just ah, bad. We should have stayed there forever. But now when Trump takes those troops that were in northern Syria, takes the oil, okay, but then also sends some of those troops to western Iraq, where they will continue to do what they're still doing, where's the, where's the outrage over our troops not getting out? Where's the outrage over he just shuffled them from one place where we shouldn't be to another place where we shouldn't be? The thing that's so frustrating is that it's not like we have one bad actor who's the problem here. It's that the entire system and the entire way we talk about what's going on is also broken. And um, all the things that should genuinely be outrageous to people are not even a blip on the radar. And everybody just accepts it. We can't learn to be okay casually with being the world's pirates as we pretend like we're the world's angels. And no, I'm not talking about the the baseball team. All right, Nancy Pelosi. I don't want to talk about her, but I have to. Nancy Pelosi went on Bloomberg. And uh, she spoke about the issue of Medicare for All, among many other issues. You already know how this is going to go, don't you? Maybe, um, I'm not a big fan of Medicare for All. I mean, I, I welcome the debate. I think that we should have health care for all. I think that the Affordable Care benefit is better than the Medicare benefit. Um, but we have invited uh, a advocates for it to testify in Congress, in the Ways and Means Committee, in the Budget Committee, in the Rules Committee, being respectful of the point of view. But it is um, uh, expensive. Um, Who pays is very important. What are the benefits that come in there? So I I would think that hopefully as we emerge into the election year, the mantra will be more health care for all Americans, because there is a comfort level that some people have with their current private insurance that they have, and if that is to be phased out, let's talk about it, but let's not just have one bill that would do that. You have no idea how furious this makes me, because you never, ever, ever see this on the Republican side. Leading into an election, the leader of the Republicans going, you know... What issues do you guys care mostly about? What do you care mostly about? Tax cuts and the wall. I don't like those ideas. I think they're bad. Anyway, you better fall in line and vote for me. Unity, unity, unity. They don't do that because they're not idiots. They're not idiots. They understand, oh, so why does our base come out for us? Okay, because Trump's always talking about the wall, and he's not a fan of immigrants, and he's always talking about tax cuts. I'm not going to, am I going to tell my own base? 
to piss off and the things you care about I'm not on, on board with? Why would you do that? That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. The dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. So if you actually cared about beating Donald Trump, if you actually cared about Democrats winning, you would never, ever, ever say what you just said. Nancy Pelosi just put her middle finger up to over 80% of her own party. According to some polls, over 70% of the entire country. According to some polls, even 52% of Republicans she just put her middle finger up to. And you expect to win? You expect people to like you? Now I know, what's the pretty little lie that she tells herself? Uh, I'm the serious candidate. I'm the master legislator. She calls herself a master legislator. A master at what? Giving Republicans, the, the D.C. establishment Republicans, what they want? As you try to tell your base you're killing it? She calls herself a master legislator. And look at what the discourse is and what she's saying. She says, oh, the Affordable Care Act benefit is better than the Medicare benefit. I find it hard to believe that even she believes that, because that's beyond ridiculous. The Affordable Care Act is mostly an individual mandate system. So it makes you buy private insurance. There's the Medicaid expansion, which is part of it, which is a good thing. There are provisions that are positive, of course. Protection for pre-existing conditions, for example. Um, Kids get to stay on their parents' rolls until they're 26. There's good stuff about it, but it is mostly a law that makes you buy private insurance. So it makes you pick a mafia to rip you off. And she says the Affordable Care Act is better than the Medicare benefit. Even with the loopholes that we currently have under Medicare, Medicare is still way better, way better. And by the way, it's totally misleading what she's saying because under Bernie's Medicare for All bill, all the loopholes that exist under current Medicare, they're fixed. So now you get dental and vision as well. So when she says the Affordable Care Act benefit is better than the Medicare benefit, that's just factually not true. (laughs) Medicare already covers more, but Bernie's Medicare for All bill covers even more than regular Medicare covers. And then she goes on, and this is Nancy Pelosi 101. I will just repeat Republican talking points back to them. Well, thank you very much. You know, there's a party you can join. It's called the Republican Party. Go ahead. Tell the Republicans that they're right about something that they're objectively wrong on. Oh, it's really expensive. Medicare for all is, I hope you're sitting, you ready for this? A trillion dollar tax cut. Multi-trillion dollar tax cut. You're like, wait, hold on. What? Yes. The way the system works now is more expensive. If you do a Medicare for all system over the next 10 years, we save $5 trillion. Because you get rid of that unnecessary for-profit price gouging middleman. You get rid of that mafia, which is in between you and your doctor. You still get to pick your doctor, but there's no mafia that's in the middle taking an unnecessary amount of money from you. So the uh, study from the University of Massachusetts Amherst says says it saves $5 trillion over 10 years. Um, That is a giant tax cut because guess what? Premiums, co-pays, and deductibles, all the stuff you have to pay to the private health insurance company, that's a tax. That's a private tax. We're talking about raising public taxes but eliminating the private taxes, so you're going to save a tremendous amount of money. But, of course, you're just repeating a Republican talking point. And then now the other part about this that i got to give Nancy a little bit of credit because at least she's being kind of honest. She's like, I'm not a fan of Medicare for all. Okay, well, thank you. Unfortunately, in today's day and age, we got a lot of people running around pretending like they support Medicare for all, and they don't. Mayor Pete, for example. Oh, Medicare for all, yeah, but sure, Medicare for all who want it. 
you got all these weasel words, all these ways of trying to co-opt the popularity of Medicare for All while not delivering on the actual policy substance. So Nancy's uh, you know, little sprinkle of that at the end there is, we should be talking about health care for all Americans. None of the bills that Nancy Pelosi supports would give health care to all Americans, full stop. None of them. There are a variety of different ways to give health care to all Americans, but the connecting tissue for all of those proposals is it's free at the point of service. It's funded by tax dollars, but free at the point of service. She's not in favor of that. She's not in favor of that at all. So she's not in favor of a single-payer system or a multi-payer system or any version that would be free at the point of service. She's not in favor of that. Neither is Mayor Pete. Neither is all these candidates running around co-opting the term Medicare for all for their own nefarious ends in a bill that's a half measure through and through. So here we have Democrats conceding up front, giving in to the Republicans up front, feeding their propaganda up front, and then they're going to turn around and be like, oh, we couldn't get it. Would you look at that? Oh, they twisted my arm. What were we supposed to do? You were supposed to unequivocally stand up for Medicare for all and fight for it ruthlessly. So just so everybody understands, we're not just taking on the Republican Party in Washington, D.C., and the establishment Republicans. We're also taking on the establishment Democrats. We're going to be taking on over half the Democratic Party. And I'm not playing about this. I'm not playing about this. We're going to fight. We're going to fight. We got a list, and we're taking names. And we are going to primary you to your left, and we're going to keep doing that. And guess what? We're going to win. Because with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we had a 10-to-1 money disadvantage, and we won. Because the power of our ideas transcends the lack of money, and the negative media coverage. Because this status quo is no longer tolerable. I can't have a Democratic Party that stands for nothing. I can't have a Democratic Party that stands for terrible little incremental steps in the right direction as people die. 30,000 to 45,000 Americans die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. 500,000 Americans go bankrupt as a result of medical bills. And Nancy Pelosi's out there talking about, hmm, I'm not a fan of Medicare for all. Affordable Care Act is better. As bodies pile up, they play politics and agree with Republicans. And you wonder why her approval rating is like 20%. Now you know. Okay. Now we got Mayor Pete. So CNN is actively trying to force Mayor Pete uh, into your consciousness. And um, they're going to compare him to Obama here. They took the time to do an entire segment on this. Take a look. Change that America can believe in. At this point in that presidential campaign, this 46-year-old senator from Illinois was still an underdog, well behind Hillary Clinton, but slowly starting to catch fire. This year, the youngest candidate in the race is also on the move. Are you ready to leave behind the reality show in Washington and change the channel to something we can all be proud of? It's too soon to know if Pete Buttigieg will follow the rise of Barack Obama, but he's turning some of the same heads in Iowa, like Terry and John Hale. Does he remind you of Senator Obama? Absolutely. It's the intelligence, it's that cool composure. 
It's the ability to be presidential. He is, is catching on. The more people that see him, the more people that support him. It was 12 years ago when Obama's long-shot candidacy turned a corner here, dazzling thousands of Democrats at the state party's fall gala. This time, the Hales are among many Obama admirers, now on the Buttigieg bandwagon. He and Obama both had a certain amount of pragmatism to them. At a recent rally, Terry Hale introduced the South Bend mayor. Right now, Mayor P. Buttigieg! And she said she felt like she did in 2007. The energy and the excitement and the positivity and the hope that's what I feel at events for Pete, and I have not felt that since Barack Obama. Buttigieg was also watching that race closely, volunteering for Obama in the final days of the Iowa contest. It's what's going on on the ground and what kind of relationships you're forming uh, that serve you well when the caucus day actually rolls around. No two campaigns or candidates are the same, yet both men represent a fresh face and are calling for change. I believe that we need a new generation of leadership to step forward. Same old Washington textbook campaigns just won't do in this election. The Buttigieg campaign is embracing the comparisons, trying to use its $23 million cash on hand and momentum in the polls to build a modern-day Obama-like operation. They want this narrative to become a narrative, and they want people to believe it, casually regurgitate it, and act on it. They, Mayor Pete is their insurance policy. They have a few of them. They were trying to pump up Klobuchar after the last debate and Mayor Pete after the last debate. The establishment at this point is officially anybody but Bernie. They would even take Elizabeth Warren. There's been plenty of positive coverage of Elizabeth Warren recently. Because Elizabeth Warren has uh, showed signs behind the scenes that she's willing to work with the establishment. She's not necessarily an enemy of the establishment Democrats. Um, so they have an any, anybody but Bernie policy, but they kind of see that Biden is fading. They would prefer other candidates to Elizabeth Warren, even though they would at the end of the day be okay with her over Bernie. But Mayor Pete is like top of their list, man. Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar, they love these characters because – it's the same, the idea is, just like with Barack Obama, what he ended up being is this great quote. I've heard Cenk Uger repeat it, um, and he was quoting somebody else, but it's change on the outside, continuity on the inside. Oh, a young black voice, he became president. Oh, my God, isn't that amazing? And, oh, would you look at that? Mostly status quo on the inside. There were some positive things, of course, but then there was a lot of negative stuff, too. The expansion of war the expansion of NSA spying, the drone war, um, the Wall Street bailout, $14 trillion worth. So he was acceptable by the establishment, but he had the veneer of serious change for demographic reasons and because of his rhetoric and because he spoke about, like, this is not a regular old Washington campaign. We're all about hope and change. We're, gonna, we're not going to play the same old game better. We're going to have a new game. So Mayor Pete represents that. He's young, he's gay, he's um, fresh, uh, you know, fresh, bold, new leadership here. Now, go back and watch that segment again that you just watched. You tell me how much they brought up policy. Here, I'll spare you having to sit through it again. They didn't bring it up at all. Not even a little bit. Nothing on policy. So CNN does this superficial segment trying to say Pete is like Obama 
because CNN wants you to think Pete is like Obama, because CNN wants Pete to do well. CNN would love Pete being elected. Not a single word on policy. Instead, here, I, I wrote it down. These are the themes that kept coming up. He's pragmatic. What does that mean? Tell me exactly what you mean. How is he pragmatic? How is he pragmatic? Because that's code word for he tells the left to shut the hell up. That's what that is. Um, intelligence. He's so intelligent. Give me an example. Okay, you could string together a sentence and he sounds really professional. But tell me why you say he's intelligent. What exactly is he calling for? What's he fighting for that you would you know, put under the intelligent category? See, they're, they're more in love with style over substance. That's what it is. The whole segment is about style over substance. Ooh, isn't he like Obama? Ooh, isn't he really professional? Ooh, isn't he pragmatic and intelligent? And then they literally say, oh, he brings positivity and hope. You know who brings me hope? Bernie Sanders, because he's going to fight for Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars and a Green New Deal and freeing nonviolent drug offenders and legalizing marijuana. And the list goes on and on of all the policy positions I know he's going to fight for. I don't even know what Mayor Pete stands for. Neither do you. Nobody does. He's running on, I want Mayor Pete to be president, that I want to be president. It's all about me, 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 me. You want to know how I know that? Because I can ask you, what are his top policy ideas? Go. You know, you look at Tulsi, oh, and uh, regime change wars. She has a thing. That's her thing. It pops right in your mind. You might not like her, but that's her thing. And it pops right in your mind. Andrew Yang, UBI, universal basic income. Something pops right to your mind. Even with Elizabeth Warren, there's something that immediately pops to my mind when I think of Elizabeth Warren. Crackdown on Wall Street. That's the first thing that pops to my mind. I like I put up two. That's the first thing that comes to my mind because that's what she's cared most about, and that's what she's fought more for. Bernie, Medicare for all, overthrowing the corrupt establishment. So there's, there are things that come to your mind when you think of these candidates. Mayor Pete? Mayor Pete, the first thing that comes to mind is narcissism. Mayor Pete wants to be president because Mayor Pete wants to be president. That's it. Listen, Adam Johnson said it best. This is as superficial as it gets. This is as superficial as it gets. We need to be more serious about politics than this. Politics isn't just like, who's your favorite brand? Do you like Coca-Cola or Pepsi? (laughs) That can't be what politics is. Politics has to be about what direction do you want to take the country in policy-wise? How do you want to fix this country? What do you want to implement? What do you want to change specifically, not generally? I wish we had somebody who was more professional and buttoned down. But what is, what is that person going to do? Somebody could be professional and buttoned down and bomb 18 different countries. Is that better than somebody who sounds like they have no filter but is bombing no countries? No. So I'm sick of it, man. I can't take it. Mayor Pete is terrible. He's a 1990s-style politician running uh, in 2019 to try to become president in 2020. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I'm sick of the candidates who stand for nothing and who spend more time gaslighting you about saying what they're against instead of what they're for. And that's all you get from Mayor Pete these days. Oh, we can't do free college. Why would I want the rich kids to have uh, free college? Oh, we can't do Medicare for all. Why not Medicare for all who want it? I'm tired of the gaslighting of the left 
I'm tired of the politicking and the strategizing. If you're not going to fight for a, a, a bold, new, social democratic vision, I don't want to hear it. And if anybody falls for this guy's shtick, oh my God, that's really sad. Anybody who's actively supporting Mayor Pete, it's like, what are you doing? It's all, it's all, it's the feelings brigade. He makes me feel good. <laughs> he brings me positivity and hope. And he's intelligent and he's pragmatic. There's a reason why they say nothing on policy. Because they have nothing to add on policy. Nothing. So, he's a fraud. He's a con man. And don't fall for the same neoliberal, centrist, corporatist head fakes. Because that's what they're going to try to do with him. Ooh, change. He's young. That doesn't mean anything. There are young people who believe good things. There are young people who believe bad things. That doesn't mean anything. He's young and he's gay. So there's a, we need a new generation of leadership. Bernie Sanders, even though he's older when it comes to his age, is for bold, fresh, newer ideas. I care about the policy. I don't care about the surface-level garbage. And obviously, all CNN has something to say about is the surface-level garbage, which is why they're doing the superficial segment trying to compare him to Obama, because they want to help him. They want to help him, and they would love it if he became president. Okay, next. Jack from Twitter. Here we go. So Jack from Twitter announced that uh, Twitter will stop all political ads on the platform. Now, I'm going to read you what he said in a second, but first let me give you my initial reaction. Now, when I hear that, I think, okay, there's only two things that are in the realm of reasonable, in my opinion. One of those things is take a total hands-off, free speech approach of we don't curate anything, we're just a middleman, You can't blame us. You can't blame YouTube because somebody put up a terrible YouTube comment because YouTube says we have no stake in that. We we don't curate. We don't filter. We don't censor. We don't do anything. It just is what it is. It's a bathroom wall. You put whatever you want, and that's the end of it. Okay? That's one of the positions that I find reasonable is them saying we're not in the business of it. Sorry. We're not in the business of it. You put up whatever you want. You get whatever ads you want, but we're not going to nitpick. That's one position that's reasonable. The other position that I think is reasonable is not – trying to fact check and nitpick and say what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, but saying, you know what? We're removing ourselves from this entirely, this debate entirely, by saying no more political ads. So we're just going to say no to all political ads. Now, the reason why that's also reasonable is it's even-handed. It's even-handed. And it's not trying to fact check and nitpick and get into the nitty-gritty because there's so many shades of gray where people only see black and white, and you can never fact check properly. And then also, who's going to fact check the fact checkers? Who's going to watch the Watchmen? Are you the Ministry of Truth now? So those are the two positions I think are reasonable. However, we're going to see just how wide-reaching this is, and you're going to see it's really confusing, and maybe this wasn't such a good idea. So here's what Jack said. We've made the decision to stop all political advertising on Twitter globally. We believe political message reach should be earned, not bought. Why? A few reasons. I'm not going to give you all of his tweets here, but I'll give you some of them. A political message earns reach when people decide to follow an account or retweet. Paying for reach removes that decision, forcing highly optimized and targeted political messages on people. We believe this decision should not be compromised by money. Okay, that sounds reasonable so far. 
While internet advertising is incredibly powerful and very effective for commercial advertisers, that power brings significant risk to politics, where it can be used to influence votes to affect the lives of millions. Internet political ads present entirely new challenges to civic discourse. Machine learning-based optimization of messaging and micro-targeting, unchecked misleading information, and deep fakes, all at increasing velocity, sophistication, and overwhelming scale. We considered stopping only candidate ads, but ads present, or excuse me, but issue ads present a way to circumvent. Additionally, it isn't fair for everyone but candidates to buy ads for issues they want to push. So we're stopping these two. We're well aware we're a small part of a much larger political advertising ecosystem. Some might argue our actions today could favor incumbents. But we have witnessed many social movements reach massive scale without any political advertising. I trust this will only grow. A final note, this isn't about free expression. This is about paying for reach, and paying to increase the reach of political speech has significant ramifications that today's democratic infrastructure may not be prepared to handle. It's worth stepping back in order to address. Okay, when I first heard about this proposal, I thought he was just referring to candidate ads. Candidate ads. So Republican Congressman X is running in Texas and he's releasing an ad. Or Democratic candidate Y is running in Massachusetts and she's releasing an ad. He's saying quite clearly, no, 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 this goes beyond that. Because if you want to do issues-based ads, well, that's a way to circumvent our rule on banning political ads. But then how far-reaching is this? Because if you're not saying we're going to ban political ads from candidates, you're saying we're just going to ban politics stuff, period, when it comes to paying for reach, when it comes to advertising. What if, and I'm just, I wouldn't do this, but I'm just throwing it out there because it's a good example. What if I decided I want to, I want to grow the show and I want to buy some reach, some advertising on Twitter? Am I not allowed to do that because my whole show is political? And if, you don't, if you're not a fan of me, fill in the blank with whoever you want. If you're a right-winger and you love Ben Shapiro, is he not allowed to buy ads and try to reach his? So, and by the way, what's the line on what is political and what's not political? Like, what if there's a new hybrid car that comes out, not hybrid, but a fully electric car, and that company wants to advertise talking about how good their product is for the environment? You can make an argument that that's, of course, that's inherently political because they're talking about clean energy and they're talking about fixing the environment. And you could say, well, that's political. So if somebody can, if, if they're allowed to buy that ad, why can't Ford run an ad for a truck that actually is not clean and still runs on gasoline and pollutes? And they mention the fact that it's still a good old fashioned, you know, gas run truck. Like, Everything is political. Everything is political. What if a marijuana company wants to run an ad on Twitter, promote a tweet or something that talks about a product that's legal in their state? Are they not allowed because that's inherently political? What if Planned Parenthood wants to run an ad to let people know, hey, man, there are, there are options here. And if you need contraceptives, if you need the morning after pill, we're going to run an ad. Are they not allowed to do it because Planned Parenthood is inherently political? Is, is the military going to be allowed? Because, you know, the, 
They always try to do outreach, the military. They want to get more recruits. What That would be inherently political. Is that banned as well? Are you not allowed to do that? So, in other words, this is totally unenforceable and unworkable because the line of what counts as politics and doesn't count as politics is incredibly blurry. Um, now, again, I would say if he had just limited it to political candidates, I think there's a pretty good argument that he's saying, hey, we're checking out and we're not going to be involved in that. But to ban issues, uh, advertisements on issues, to ban advertisements from political shows. So is Fox News and MSNBC, are they not allowed to advertise on Twitter because they're inherently political? I don't know. I don't know the answers to these questions. But bottom line is, you're never going to draw the line in a way that makes everybody happy. And you're never going to draw the line in a way that makes you not a hypocrite. (laughs) You're never going to draw the line in a way that makes you perfectly objective. So this is way too far-reaching. And what we're seeing here is, and I warned you guys about this too, when it came to uh, Mark Zuckerberg, you had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and many others on the left basically screaming at him like, are we allowed, so I could just run an ad that's totally false. I could say Republicans support the Green New Deal or whatever it is, and that's fine. According to Facebook, that's fine. Because they say Trump was allowed to lie in his ad about Biden and Ukraine and all that stuff. And basically, they ended up begging Mark Zuckerberg and Silicon Valley to be the Ministry of Truth, to please censor the things that are false and allow the things that are not false. And what they don't understand is, and this always drives me crazy, is censorship always hurts the left. Always it will come back to hurt the left. And we're seeing it right now. I mean, so at the same time this is happening, did you know that Twitter uh, recently banned uh, Palestinian news agencies? What? They're also doing it... um, There was another article I saw where they were banning uh, Cuban voices as well. So once you open this door to censorship and deplatforming, and even when it comes to ads, like, oh, we're not going to allow you to run political ads. Well, I'm telling you, in no uncertain terms, this will come back to haunt the left. Because it's always used. The left, by their very nature, if you're a real lefty, you're skeptical of power. You're skeptical of uh, the centers of power in our society, and you make arguments against them and what they're doing. Obviously, if you give the people with the power the ability to censor and deplatform and take people out of the dialogue, they're going to do it to the people who are questioning them. Duh. Duh. So with Mark Zuckerberg, I, I don't trust Silicon Valley billionaires to be the arbiters of truth and what's allowed and what's not allowed. So the only... The least bad option is to just say, hey, we're not in that business, and you can put whatever you want to put. You want to advertise whatever you want to advertise, go right ahead. You want to write whatever you want to write, go right ahead. But, and then the other thing is, and it's true, social media is typically a way for anti-establishment campaigns to go around the, the gatekeepers of traditional media. And so when you say no more advertising at all for politics on social media, you are probably handicapping anti-establishment candidates and favoring incumbents, helping incumbents. So here's the problem, guys. Any problems you could bring up with Facebook or Twitter and disinformation and election interference and all that stuff, any potential solution is only going to exacerbate the problem and make it worse. So this ultimately, I think, is a terrible idea. If he had just narrowed it to, okay, only like literal political campaigns and like super PACs, none Nothing from that, but you want issues, you want the media, you want whatever it might be, they could still do advertising. I mean, that would be way more defensible 
But when now you're trying to like weed out all advertising when it comes to politics, that's a terrible idea, and it will come back to haunt the left, and it already is coming back to haunt the left. So careful what you wish for, man. Because um, he, he had to say, oh, this isn't about free expression. You want to know why he said that? Because it is about free expression. Of course it's about free expression. It is. It just is. The price you pay for having the word spread about, like, positive stuff is Hannity's got to be allowed to run an ad on, on Twitter and Republican politicians have got to be allowed to do the same. I mean, that's the price you pay. If you want to hear about Bernie Sanders, if you want to hear about Tulsi Gabbard or Andrew Yang or whoever it might be, um, the price you pay is everybody gets it. It's an open system, an open format. So he thinks he's doing something to fix it here. But in reality, it's just making it a less open platform, a less free platform. And uh, it really does stifle, I think, the spread of left ideas, just as much as you would say it cracks down on, you know, the bad ideas of the right or the election meddling or whatever it might be. So not sure I like this idea. And I definitely want this trend to stop, the trend of lefties begging Silicon Valley begging social media giants to get more involved and do more censoring and deplatforming and banning and all that stuff. Because I'm telling you, that 100% will continue to hurt the left and already is hurting the left. Okay, now we're going to go to Andrew Yang. And unfortunately, man, he upset me. He did upset me. Here we go. So Andrew Yang has been asked uh, a lot more about Medicare for All recently. You're going to see two clips here. One is the uh, a short clip that came out first, and then that's put together with a CNN interview where he's asked uh, more directly about it. Let's take a look, and then we'll discuss that you're calling 
this Medicare for all, but when you ask about the substance, you still want to keep private insurance, which is not Medicare for all. How do you respond? <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because we had an internal debate about this. Like, what does Medicare for all mean? If you look at it, what does it say? Medicare for all, which means that you have a Medicare program that everyone can be enrolled in. So you're adopting the label, but not the bill. That's correct. Is that a little disingenuous to people looking for that? you know, that flavor of a Democratic candidate, but with, you know, if they don't know the substance of your plan? Well, we're, we're clear about the substance of our plan in various uh, places, and we're going to have a, a more detailed uh, rollout uh, of the full plan in the days to come. Okay, so let's dive into this. Um, we'll see his plan soon, and we'll evaluate it when that plan comes out, but it sounds pretty clearly like he doesn't support the duplicative care provision. So um, if he was just talking about private insurance and he meant supplemental, I would be defending him. It doesn't sound like he's talking about just supplemental. Um, he says, he quite literally says, we want to keep the label but not the bill. Own your position, man. And I, I say this, I, it's targeted towards everybody not name Bernie Sanders. Just own your position. Just own it. Um, Medicare choice, a public option, Medicare for all extra, Medicare for all who want it, all these things. It's not Medicare for all. It's not. So for Andrew Yang, and I would love it if the, the interviewers would ask him this next question, because this is, how, this is the only way that we'll really know exactly what his position is. And again, he'll release his plan and we'll evaluate that when it comes out. But you have to ask him if he supports the duplicative care provision. And you have to ask him if somebody likes their employer-sponsored health insurance or their union health insurance, do they get to keep it? Because my guess is, and Andrew's an honest guy, so my guess is he'll say, I don't support the duplicative care provision. And I do think that if you like your union health, uh, health insurance or your um, em employer-sponsored health insurance, I do think you should be able to keep it. Because what he sounds like he's saying is it, it's about competition. He's like, oh, we should be able to show people that our Medicare for All system, what he really means is a public option, is better than what they currently have. That seems to be what he's getting at. But again, what I would say to Andrew Yang is, okay, but then just please stop calling it Medicare for All because that's not supporting Medicare for All. It's not. You're supporting a public option. If you listen, I, I want to be able to have a conversation with him and just disagree with him up front, as opposed to him co-opting the language of my position and then arguing for a different position. Just please be upfront about it, Andrew. I'm not trying to say this as like I'm not trying to like go after him or be negative. I'm just saying, like, please rep your position crystal clear and don't do what you just said you're going to do, which is I'm going to take the label, but not the bill. No, the label is the bill. Medicare for all is a bill. Do you support that bill or not? And the answer is really no. He doesn't support that bill, even though he has a thing on his website that says Medicare for all. I mean, it's just, he says, oh, we're clear in many contexts. You're not clear now. This is not being clear. So now, again, I want to walk through, just so everybody understands what my position is on this and why my position is what it is. That duplicative care provision is incredibly important because that's the crux of what makes a Medicare for all bill a Medicare for all bill. So the duplicative uh, care provision means you can't have an insurance company offer insurance for something that's already covered under the Medicare for all system. Okay. And the idea behind that is they're basically like robbing you. They're basically like 
they're like doing fraud. They're offering you something that you already have that's where you're already fully covered for less money. And then they come in like snake oil salesmen and say, yeah, we'll sell you the same coverage, except we're going to take a giant cut of this. I mean, these, that's what this is. It, it would basically be like arguing for, I want the mafia to continue to exist to be a middleman in between you and your doctor to steal your money. I want this middleman to continue to price gouge you. And, you know, it'd be too disruptive if we got rid of that unnecessary, rapacious, mafia-like middleman. That's not too disruptive. That's not too disruptive at all. That's, that's what it should be. We shouldn't have price gouging in between you and your doctor. You absolutely should have the choice of your doctor, and you will. By the way, right now under the system, you don't really have choice of your doctor. I know because I'm going through it right now. With my insurance, you know, i got to find a doctor who's in my network. I don't have the choice of my doctor. With Medicare for All, you have the choice of your doctor. But to argue for choice of health insurance company, that's just you're arguing for which mafia you want to rip you off. You want the Irish mafia, the Italian mafia, you want the Jewish mafia to rip you off. Somebody's going to rip you off. Which mafia do you want, uh, you know, to, to rip you off? So, you know, for all the candidates, just own your position, man. And Andrew Yang will come out with his bill, and he'll have a name for his bill, but I hope from here on out he doesn't say he's for Medicare for all. Because... If you're okay with somebody keeping their current mafia, ripping them off, you're not for Medicare for all. If you're not in favor of that duplicative care provision, you're not for Medicare for all. Again, if he was saying all, the only role for private health insurance is um, supplemental, I would be defending him. But I don't think that's what he's saying. In fact, it's pretty clear that that's not what he's saying. Bernie's bill allows for supplemental health insurance, but it still has the duplicative care provision. That's a super important provision. Under Bernie's Medicare for All system, you know, what you have is the, the risk pool is all in one place. So you spread out the risk, and you'll be able to cover everybody, and it'll be for less. If you have a system where for-profit health insurance companies still have giant market share, you're in trouble. Because, again, what's going to happen is they'll try to take all the healthy people, and then they'll overburden the uh, public option, and then... You'll have too many sick people in the public option, not enough money in there, and so the quality will come down, and it'll be a mess. And people will turn around and say, see, private, the private option is better. It's only better because of the way you structured the system. If you structure the system where we have a single-payer option, then it, it, it'll be wonderful. It'll be great. It's upsetting. It's upsetting. Everybody not named Bernie Sanders, backing off of it. Just own your position, Andrew. Please own your position. Because then we have a real discussion about it. Instead, you want to take the title while arguing for a watered-down version of it. That's not okay. All right, next. Connor went on Democracy Now! and uh, he's leading now on an issue that's been off the radar of the media and everybody else in Washington, D.C. Take a look. Can this information be 
information uh, that came to light uh, in the Wall Street Journal reporting Vice President Mike Pence called Juan Guaido the night before he declared himself president of Venezuela, pledging U.S. support for his actions, Congressman Khanna. Well, the Democrats should be appalled by that and criticizing that. I mean, for all of our legitimate concerns about Russian interference in our elections, where we get concerned if a journalist appears on Russian television and a member of Congress talks to them, imagine if someone were calling the opposition uh, in our country. We would be uh, furious, justifiably furious. And so it makes no sense that our vice president would be calling and interfering in politics in Venezuela. What we ought to be doing is uh, working through international institutions and laws, calling for uh, human rights, but not getting involved in a potential civil war. And again, this is no defense of Maduro. Everyone recognizes that there have been extrajudicial killings there, uh, that his economic policies uh, have led to hyperinflation. Uh, but the reality is that when we have intervened in places like Syria, in places like Libya, what has the, the consequence has been uh, that things have gotten worse. And for some reason, the people who have led all these interventions uh, are still uh, able to dictate American foreign policy. It's almost as if failure is a qualification to be part of dictating what we should be doing in Venezuela. And so what are you calling for in Congress among those who have criticized um, what the um, U.S. administration is doing? Well, you have Dick Durbin, uh, Senator um, Nancy Pelosi, actually supporting Guaido. But then you have people like yourself, uh, Ilhan Omar and others, uh, Bernie Sanders, also critical of the Venezuelan government, but critical of what the U.S. is doing. What are you demanding in Congress right now? Well, first, that the Democrats should speak up against this administration's effort to get us into another civil war. Uh, we have always, unfortunately, been too silent when these interventions start. We were too silent when Iraq was taking place. We were too silent in the intervention in Syria. We were too silent in the intervention in Libya. The neocons aren't silent, and that's why they uh, often end up winning these arguments, because there's not progressive, strong opposition to us intervening. Second, we do have a pathway for a solution. Everyone knows that the only way that we are going to see greater progress in Venezuela is to have a negotiated settlement with the parties, to have an honest broker. Uruguay, Mexico, the Vatican are trying that. The United States can lend uh, credence to that effort and uh, be involved in that effort of trying to come to a negotiated settlement. And finally, these sanctions are not working. Even people completely opposed to Modero's policies have said that the sanctions are only making matters worse. They're hurting the poorest of the poor in Venezuela, uh, and we need to really look at ending those sanctions. That was awesome. Massive credit to Ro Khanna for leading on this issue. Also, massive credit to Ilhan Omar, Tulsi Gabbard, and Bernie Sanders. As far as I've seen, these are the only voices who are really speaking up on this issue and talking about it in any serious way. Um, and it's important, and it's huge. And what you see so often is, first of all, Trump's like non-interventionist rhetoric, it's nonsense. You know, we're still in Syria. We're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. Um, we're escalating with Iran. But also, what we're doing in Venezuela is terrifying because we're escalating with them. We have seized shipments of food going into a country that's starving. At the same time that we act like we care so much about Venezuelan civilians, which is why we're doing what we're doing, 
we are seizing shipments of food going into a starving country. If we really cared, not only would we not be seizing it, we'd be sending our own ships with a lot of food in there. Um, so this is an attempt to squeeze out the regime. It doesn't matter what you think of the government in Venezuela. It's irrelevant to the question. The question is, does the U.S. have a right to intervene in these foreign countries? Does the U.S. have a right to wage economic warfare on innocent people? And the answer is no. And Ro Khanna is one of the only people saying it. Again, Ro Khanna, Ilhan Omar, Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, these are the only people who've spoken up at all about it. But man, imagine if we had a Democratic Party where all the Democrats were arguing this. Imagine if we had a Democratic Party that was strong and robust in their argument against economic warfare wages on Venezuela, against intervention. I mean, you want to talk about election meddling. That's exactly the point that Ro Khanna was making. Imagine some other country did that to us. We just are declaring, we, we're declaring Juan Guaido, Guaido as president. That's not a thing. That's not how this works. You're not allowed to do that. That's not the way it functions. So uh, credit to Rokana for speaking up on this issue. Unfortunately, I don't think too many other people are going to speak up on it, but at least we have a voice out there being strong, principled, and against intervention. All right, time to talk about air pollution. Air pollution is a giant problem that's continuing to get worse. Look at what Vox reported here. Air pollution is killing more people during the Trump administration than it was under President Obama. Air pollution was responsible for 9,700 more deaths in 2018 than it was in 2016, according to a new paper by economists at Carnegie Mellon. The researchers Karen Clay and Nicholas Muller, no relation uh, to Bob Muller, argue that some of the increase is due to non-regulatory factors, like an increase in wildfires and economic growth, but they note a decline in Clean Air Act enforcement under Donald Trump that could be responsible as well. The Trump administration has so far rolled back 24 different regulations and accords related to air pollution, according to a New York Times analysis, including rules around air pollution from refineries, industrial pollution, of 189 different substances and regulation of haze in national parks. But the specific kind of pollution addressed in the new study is what experts call PM 2.5, which are microscopic particles 2.5 micrometers or less wide, a small fraction of the diameter of a human hair, arising from uh, human industry, including coal mining and burning gasoline, combustion, construction, dust, et, dust, et cetera. So they continue here and they say, PM 2.5 killed about 1 point, or excuse me, 4.1 million people in 2016 alone. Oh my God. Through those mechanisms. In the new paper, Clay and Muller analyze monitoring data collected daily as part of the Environmental Protection Agency's air quality system in 653 U.S. counties because the collections were daily that data set is quite rich. 1.8 million different readings from 2009 to 2018. Overall, the data set shows that from 2009 to 2016, PM 2.5 pollution declined by 24.2%. That was a fairly steady decline too. After holding mostly still from 2009 to 2011, pollution declined noticeably each year 
from 2011 through 2016. But between 2016 and 2018, PM 2.5 pollution rebounded, growing by 5.5%. The authors look into three potential causes for the increase, economic growth, wildfires, and decline in enforcement activity, so decline in regulation. Many PM 2.5 pollutants like nitrate, sulfate, and elemental carbon are primarily emitted by power plants, vehicles, and industrial facilities. During economic booms, those facilities are used more and produce more emissions, which could account for the increase from 2016 to 2018. So, you know, the short version of this is um, pollution is going up, deaths from pollution is going up as well, and one of the factors, not the only factor, but one of the factors for that is massive deregulation from the Trump administration. See, this is one of those things where it's a really important story, but it's not sexy enough for the media to cover it. Because when you're killed by fine particulate pollution, it happens over time. So it's not, you know, you can't immediately pin it on that, and it's not immediately obvious. But the studies show that that indeed is exactly what's happening. And when you roll back 24 different regulations and accords related to air pollution, and you deregulate 189 different substances, yeah, there are going to be, there are absolutely going to be negative side effects that are part of that. And make no mistake about it, guys, this isn't just like, oh, he has an ideological belief that deregulation is the way to go. No, a lot of the reason why we get these deregulatory policies is because the politicians are paid by the industries. The Republican Party is paid by big oil, by chemical companies. And so when those lobbyists say, hmm, look, this is what I want you to do, Trump goes, okay, sure, no problem. And then they do it. And then the result is people actually die. So, I mean, listen, man, it's incredibly important. And it's not an issue that's sexy enough that gets a lot of coverage in mainstream media or even gets the Democrats talking a lot about it. But it matters. These issues matter. And the war on the EPA, the war on the Clean Water and Air Act, it is devastating. And short-term as well, but definitely long-term, we're really, really, really hurting people and destroying the environment. It's not too much to ask for to have basic rules and regulation against terrible chemicals, you know, fine particulate matter, pollution. It's not too much to ask for to protect our water supply, protect the air with reasonable regulations. But when the industry basically owns the government, this is what you get. All right, final story of the day, y'all. Happy to be back, man. Happy to be back on air. When Trump pulled out of northern Syria, um, obviously Turkish militias invaded and immediately started committing war crimes against the Kurds. Now, you know, we've gone over this before. We don't need to go over it again in too much detail. But the bottom line is the problem wasn't that Trump pulled out of northern Syria because the U.S. was in northern Syria illegally in the first place. The problem was the way he did it. 
So you should have had the Kurds make a deal with the Syrian government before we left, so the Syrian government could have protected their own territory from the Turks and the militias. Or you have the UN uh, peacekeepers go in there, and then that would prevent, that would deter any kind of uh, Turkish offensive. So, but of course the media missed it, it missed that angle to the story, and they just argued like, well, we should have stayed there forever, obviously. And Trump didn't even really withdraw them, he just sent the troops into western Iraq, and they're doing the same thing over there. Now, when this happened, you had the media, obviously they went after Trump because they're thinking, how dare you withdraw, but they also were going after the Turkish militias and the fighting forces who were committing these war crimes against the Kurds, which is good. That's understandable. Yes, go after the people committing the war crimes. (laughs) You should call them out. Now, here's where the story takes a dark turn. It's already dark, but it gets darker. So Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone uh, Project states the following. Footage showing members of Turkey's mercenary national army executing Kurdish captives as they led the Turkish invasion of northern Syria touched off a national outrage, provoking U.S. government officials, pundits, and major politicians to rage against their brutality. In the Washington Post, a U.S. official condemned the militias as as crazy and unreliable, Another official called them thugs and bandits and pirates that should be wiped off the face of the earth. Meanwhile, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton described the scene as a sickening horror, blaming President Donald Trump exclusively for the atrocities. But the fighters involved in the atrocities in northern Syria were not just random tribesmen assembled into an ad hoc army. In fact, many were former members of the Free Syrian Army, the force once armed by the CIA and the Pentagon, and branded as moderate rebels. This disturbing context was conveniently omitted from the breathless denunciations of U.S. officials and Western pundits. According to a research paper published this October by the pro-government Turkish think tank SETA, F-E-T-A, out of the 28 factions in the Turkish mercenary force, 21 were previously supported by the United States, three of them via the Pentagon's program to combat ISIS, Daesh. 18 of these factions were supplied by the CIA via the MOM operations room in Turkey, a joint intelligence operation room of the Friends of Syria to support the armed opposition. 14 factions of the 28 were also recipients of the U.S.-supplied TOW anti-tank guided missiles. So 21 of the 28 militia factions that invaded northern Syria and started committing war crimes against the Kurds are backed by the United States of America. You guys have heard me say this a million times. I'll say it a million more. We repeatedly support jihadist and jihadist-aligned militias in order to suit our geopolitical needs. So it start, you know, all the way back to the Reagan days when we armed the Mujahideen because they were fighting the Soviet Union and we called them freedom fighters and they're on the road to peace. We praised Osama bin Laden at the time because it was politically convenient for us to do so, because we thought the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, turns out the enemy of your enemy is not always your friend. So the same people that mainstream media in the U.S. were calling freedom fighters, yes, taking down the brutal side government, the moderate rebels. Those same people, turns out, they were committing war crimes against the Kurds. Maybe... They were jihadist and jihadist-aligned all along. And they aren't the so-called freedom fighters 
that we've been told they are. But they wanted to construct that narrative. They wanted to construct that narrative because Assad is an ally of um, Russia, and we're obviously against Russia, and we're against the Syrian government. And, you know, for geopolitical reasons, we want more power and influence and control in the region. So, hey, my enemy, my enemy is my friend. Arm these militias. Oh, would you look at that? A lot of the militias are jihadists. At least 60% of them, according to a study from a few years back, um, and they have no problem committing war crimes against the Kurds. None of that brought up in mainstream media. None of that, oh, wait, we backed a lot of these people. By the way, this happened, we spoke about it a couple years ago. U.S.-backed moderate rebels beheaded a child. Beheaded a child. So this is what we do. We, we've even had CIA-backed rebels fighting Pentagon-backed rebels in Syria. Like, we arm both sides and they fight each other. Oh, boy. So, just so everybody knows, oftentimes we're not the solution to the chaos. We cause the chaos in the region. Here's an idea. Maybe don't arm people who there's even a question if they're jihadists or, you know, going to commit war crimes like crazy. I say that, but then, of course, you know, that would mean we'd also have to stop arming the Saudi government and Israel, and our government would never want to do that. Um, but this is the military-industrial complex, man. This is the military-industrial complex. It's profitable for us to bomb all these different places and arm all these different thug gangster terrorists. But now you know, and now you have the specifics. All right. We are out of time, bitch. We are out of show, bitch. Love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your lovely Monday. I'm out. Peace. Mwah.